Listo. 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 Well, let's do this, Sam. All right. Uh, Mr. Sam Butler, thank you very much for accepting my invite. Uh, oh, well, thank uh, you for having me. I've been following you for, for quite some time. And I'm a fan of your work, of your comedy. Thank I'm you. a fan of your personality. I was <laughs> telling you this before we Thank started. You. I'm a fan of the work that you're putting in, how you, like, because you document uh, everything really well. I'm a fan of that. And the fact that the, the story, hopefully, uh, well, you're able to give us a lot of details on that, but definitely your story is worth sharing. So, again, I really want to <laughs> thank you yeah, well, for thank coming. You. Thank you for having me, everybody. Hello. Uh, it's a pleasure being here on your podcast. Uh, I really like the artwork in the studio. This is really nice. It's very El Paso. It know? is El Paso. Yeah, nice. So I appreciate that. You know, nice. I, I'm from here, born and raised here. So uh, I like it. And of course, I know that this is a relatively new podcast, but I did catch some episodes. It's good, man. I appreciate being on the podcast. So thank no, you. thank you. By the way, before we started, Sam was telling me because I was telling him uh, a little bit about me. He said, no, I, I, I know that I watched uh, some of your episodes. And I was like, what? You watch me? <laughs> and I'm like, God, did I embarrass myself? Because I know I did. But w what does he think about me now? So yeah. that added pressure. But Thank oh, you don't, again no, don't worry about it. I mean, uh, the, the beauty of being on a podcast or having a podcast or listening to a podcast is that it's really like listening to a conversation, uh, you know, friends talking about, I mean, the whole, the whole premise to my podcast is like a couple of friends drinking beers, talking shit, you know, I mean, that's pretty much what I, how I want it to be, you know, so just be yourself, have fun. Nice, yeah, thank you. you. By the way, guys, before we start, we've been having a really good conversation for more than an hour. <laughs> I mean, Simon is dropping really, really uh, cool tips, advice for me, and we're just talking live, so I appreciate that as well. So thank you again. Now, for those who may not be familiar with uh, Sam Butler, can you give us a brief bio on who you are, please, sir? Oof. Yeah, I I, uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'll, give you, uh, I'll tell you about myself a little bit. Uh, born and raised here in El Paso. My mom is from Mexico, so I'm half Mexican. My dad is white. My dad is actually from Virginia, and then he grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. He actually grew up about less than a mile away from the White House. Um, he, they had a home uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue even. you know. So my dad's from D.C., white guy, Virginia accent, really heavy Virginia accent, and he met my mom in Mexico. They fell in love, and the rest is history, right? And then um, my dad, well, he moved to El Paso because this was the, the, the closest point to Mexico where he could work and still go to Chihuahua and visit my mom when they were dating. That's the reason that's why the he reason moved he all over. That's the reason he ended up here, you know. And eventually my mom and him got married and they moved here. And so they, they were here ever since, you know. And so um, I was born in 75 at Providence Hospital here in El Paso, you know. So that was uh, a while back. And uh, it's actually, it's been convenient because a lot of my family is still in Mexico. And uh, that's, I mean, it, they come here and we go there and that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's a, a thing. That's as far as me personally. Um, I'm a single dad. I have two daughters. I've, uh, they live with me. They've been lived with me now for about seven or eight years. You know, um, the oldest is 20. And the youngest just turned 17. So... I'm almost done. I'm almost an empty nester, you know, because I'm, I'm raising them like white kids. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm raising them with the Mexican culture, but they have goals and aspirations. You know, they, they want to go to college and they want to get their education and they want to leave the nest, you know, and not like the Latinos where we're like, uh, we're just going to get married and move in with mom, you know, that kind of a thing, <laughs> you know. But 
Uh, so I'll be an empty nester here in the next few few years, I guess. You know, um, the, my oldest daughter's going to college. She she wants to be a school teacher, and the youngest one's in high school. So she wants to go to school abroad. She wants to go to London to go to school. So that that'll be interesting, you know, when that happens. And um, that's it. I mean, um, professionally, well, I uh, my dad was a, a contractor. Uh, he did construction. My grandfather was a contractor. So I'm like a third generation construction guy. Um, I uh, worked for my dad when I was 12. That's when I started working for him. I'd work on the summers and weekends and uh, holidays. And then um, as we got older, we were expected to work the whole summer, you know, with, with my dad. And then um, when I got into high school, um, I was kind of getting in trouble because I was a really hyperactive kid. So I started um, getting in fights and doing different things. So my sophomore year in high school, I, went, I got enrolled in this program where I went to welding school uh, half a day, and I went to high school half a day. And then I did that for the rest of my high school career. So I didn't play football. I didn't play baseball. I didn't do any of the, the extracurriculars. I spent all those elective credits on my welding class. And then by the time I got out of high school, I was a certified welder. So I went straight to work. Started working as a welder when I was uh, 18 years old. You know, By then, in the summers, my dad would hire me to do whatever steel work he needed done. You know, So that's how I got started professionally. I got married when I was 20, and um, uh, didn't get I didn't have kids right away. But I got married, and I, I was out working, and and um, about four or five years into our marriage, we it was actually on our fifth year we had our first child. You know, so um, after that, I was a full time dad and uh, working like a dog because I wanted to build an empire. I had this vision, you know, I'm going to have a big construction company. I'm going to going to be rich <laughs> you know that was my mindset and um, and then um, my marriage fell apart um, my ex-wife had an affair and um, next thing you know I was all alone looking at myself going like dang what was all that work for why did I work so hard you know what was I trying to do I mean what good does it do you to have everything if you if it, everything you're working for just fell apart you know, and, and for me, my family was everything. And I think that everybody f gets a feeling, has to have something to, to feel important about. And for me, I realized that my family was what made me feel important. Having a wife and having two kids and having a home and, and you know, um, being able to, to go on vacation with my kids and do stuff with my kids always made me feel like I mattered in life. And then it was gone, you know, and um, once that happened, I uh, started doing some soul searching and I said, what is it that I always wanted to do with, with my life? And <clears throat> one of the things that would happen, my cousins would come from Chihuahua and they have a very good sense of humor and we would sit around and tell jokes all day. That was something that we'd always do as a family. We just, hey, dime si te acuerdas de esta. But this is what the Mexican side of your family, my right? My Mexican side okay. of the family. Yeah, we were very close to the Mexican side of my family and, and we'd tell jokes all day. Right, and, and so um, when I was about 14, my older sister said, I was walking, we were walking home together. We'd, we had gone to the store or something, and excuse me, we were walking home together, and I was making her laugh, 
and my little brother laughed. They were both laughing. And the more they laughed, the more I would make them laugh. And my sister said, man, you should be a comedian, you know. And so when I was 14, I said, yeah, I think that would be really cool. a really cool thing to do is be a comedian, you know. I didn't understand what it meant to be a comedian, but I thought that seed was planted. That was in the back of your mind. Yeah, you know, that seed was planted. Well, when I was married and working all day, I'd come home from work, and I'd kick the TV on, kick the shoes off, and I'd be there. And it, it seemed like Channel 14 was always running reruns of Seinfeld. And I remember watching Seinfeld, and he would be at the club, and he'd be hanging out in the back with other comedians. And I thought, man, that'd be really cool. I wish I had tried that. If I hadn't gotten married so young, if I hadn't gotten busy with work so young, I probably could have given it a shot, you know? I, I, it's something I think I would have really liked. Wow, and this was when you were already married. Already I married. mean, it's, it's always that idea there to yeah. to have your career in comedy. Which, by the way, we do have to add. Um, we thought it was a really good idea if we do because the story that uh, yeah. you're, you're going to talk about. <laughs> if talk we about do this love. podcast in Spanish and English, by the way, hopefully you guys enjoy. But right now, it's going to make a little bit more sense as far as why. <laughs> yeah. So, Senor, continue talking about <laughs> yeah. that, please. So, what happened was I I remember romanticizing idea of being a comedian in my head and and kind of having regrets that I never got to try that and you would watch episodes of Seinfeld and he would fly to the Tonight Show and you thought oh that would have been cool you know and he would fly to New York or he'd fly, or he'd fly to LA and do some shows and, and you go and I thought man it would have been cool to, to, to learn to do that you know and I never got to do it because I got busy having a family you know well time passes my uh uh baby mama, my kid's mom at the time, you know, she kind of is going through like a little mini midlife crisis and she starts acting up and starts starts fooling around. So I found myself single all of a sudden. And of course, I, I, I thought about just taking off. I, I thought about um, going to, to another state and just starting over, you know. Oh, this well, is still in El Paso, right? This is still, in El Paso, okay. yeah. I've, uh, and, you know, I thought, man, I should just move away you know, and just start over. But then I started thinking about my kids and I felt like I can't leave my kids. I mean, um, I felt bad about that. You know, I felt like, like, uh, it was my responsibility to be in their lives. And that was a very big thing for me. So I said, Oh, I can't leave my kids. So I'm kind of stuck here now. So what am I going to do? What am I going to do with myself? And then I started kind of hanging out at the comic strip and I talked to a comedian at the comic strip. His name was Brian Scalero. He was visiting He's kind of a big comic. Uh, Brian Scalero has been on Comedy Central, all this stuff. And I told him, I said, I've always thought about being a comedian. And he said, well, do it. And I said, well, I don't know. Um, you know, how, what do I do, you know? And he said, well, find a stage to get on. He goes, they're, they're out there. He says, Google comedy in El Paso. Find an open mic and go get on a stage. I challenge you to do it before the end of the month. Right? And I went, Wow. And I was like, okay. So um, got online, found out there was a little group of comics here in town called Sun City Comedy. And they were doing, they were doing shows and open mics and stuff like that. And I went, uh, sent them a message. I always wanted to be a comedian. And at that time, they were doing shows at the OP, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, they were like, well, we have a show on Sunday at the OP. Come by, right? And I was like, all right, cool. So I got to the OP. It was a Sunday night like 9.30 at night or something. It was late. It was really late for a Sunday, but it was an open mic, and I said, okay, I want to do it. And so uh, I get there, and I said, I want to watch, because I was like, I don't know how to do this. I want to watch. I got there, and there was a comedian there, and he goes, 
Um, you gonna do some time? I went, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm here to watch. Ah, come on, you can do some time. I was like, well, he goes, if you want to be a comedian, you probably already have stuff you've written. Which, which was true. Which at was that, true. Okay. I had this, I had this whole idea that I, I thought, I thought nobody had ever thought of this before, and I was gonna tell a joke about how I was really a lesbian, <laughs> right? Like. <laughs> Like this was my big. This was gonna make me famous in that my mind. Throw me off. <laughs> right? okay. In my mind, I was gonna tell how I'm I'm a lesbian. Okay. You know? And and now I look back and go, that's so stupid. You know? But but that was like I thought there'll be merchandise on that. I mean, uh, it's genius. It's gold, Jerry. It's gold. You know? I was like, I'm gonna tell a joke about being a lesbian. You know? And uh, I would tell my friends that though, and they thought it was funny. So I thought for sure they were always like, you should join. You should go do open mic contests. You would probably win. You're hilarious. And I went. And I didn't do so bad. It went okay. I did three minutes. My very the very first time I got on stage, they're like, "Do three minutes." And I did three minutes, and then one one comic was even like, "Are you sure this is your first time doing comedy?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah." Because now nah, you yeah, think you may have done comedy before, and I was like, "No, no, it's my first time." So after that, I started hanging around with the, the comics, the and they had all these little shows, and they'd invite me to do shows, and, and I started out slow. Brian Scalero. He explained to me how the business works, the comedy business. He spent time. He goes, come by on Saturday. This was like a Wednesday. Come by on Saturday. Come to the show as my guest. And then we'll have some beers after the show. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, he's cool. Because you were a fan at that time, I was a fan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I remember that Saturday, the door guy at the comic strip, um, I get to the comic strip and I say, Brian said to come as his guest. And then... um, Brian goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the guy's name was Tim at the door. He goes, Tim, this is Sam. He's a local comedian, right? And I was like, uh, okay. And then they were like, oh, well, if you're a comedian, you don't have to pay. I mean, it's a kind of a rule in comedy that if you're a comedian, you don't pay to get into comedy clubs because that's kind of where you're supposed to be. You know, it's kind of like where you hang out and you learn. And they, if they have the, the space, they don't charge comedians. I mean, that's a, a ethical thing. You know, it's like come hang out, do, you know, just if we were sold out, you can't come. If it's a special event, you can't come. But usually on a, on a regular night, you can go and hang out at the comedy club. And that's where you learn how to be a good comedian. So I'm hanging out at the club, and they start treating me really nice because I'm a local comedian, and I haven't even been on stage yet, you know? So I started doing comedy, and once I had success on my very first time on stage, it was the material wasn't good. But I felt like it was successful enough. That was it. I was hooked. Sam, before you continue the story, I, I just want to add that you did this after your divorce, which for you, uh, the way you're describing it, I mean, it was uh, a bad divorce, right? It, it was one of yeah, those. Yeah, it, du- it was during the divorce that I, I really, like, we were still fighting a lot now, at the time. My thing was is that, um, not that I'm an expert on comedy at all, but that requires, there's a lot of rejection in comedy. So when I'm thinking as far as a divorce, that in a sense, you have just been rejected by someone, yes. by a person, and then going to a place, comedy, that you are going to get rejected, especially at first. Yeah. How did that play out? Because to me, it's, it, it's m- almost the opposite. Like you said, you know, I just want to hide. I just want to be away from people. But in your case, you know what? This is what I want. It seems that you accepted that you were going to be rejected, but how did you take that or what was the process of that? Well, what happened was when I first first split up with uh, with my kid's mom, um, I, sp- 
I spent a lot of time at strip clubs because I didn't have any friends. All our friends were couples, and I didn't want to be that guy at the bar that's sitting by himself. And what Better I, be that guy at the strip club. What I found is that the that that's pretty much, if you're a loner and you're by yourself, a strip club is a very inviting place. And I wasn't even there for the dances as much as just a place to go sit somewhere and, and nobody would. And I, I, got to, I got to make a lot of friends with the strippers. I mean, I, I made a lot of stripper friends that were, they were actually pretty, pretty wise when it came to relationships. I mean, they had a lot of breakups themselves. You know, they were always talking, you know, they were like, I had one stripper tell me, she said, look, there's always a taker in a relationship and a giver. And the taker will always take and the giver will always give. And you were the giver in that relationship and she was the taker. He says, and if you don't put limits on how much you give, the taker will always take. And I was like, whoa, like it blew my mind, right? And she said, wait a second, I just want to dance, right? Yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> like, what can I get for $20? <laughs> wow, <laughs> you know? so what you're telling me is that that helped you through the it was, process. It was like a little therapy. Yeah, and it is. And that's, that's exactly right. Like yeah. as far as that advice that she provided. Yeah, these, yeah. Girls, these girls were like, I mean, they're there, to, they're there to work. They're there to dance and stuff. But a lot of these girls, I mean, they were in abusive relationships. They, they've been through everything. They, I mean, from, from being abused by an uncle, a parent you know, to a boyfriend, to, and they, they were just like very understanding. It was like nice to talk to someone, you know, and it was like, but then I started to spend money and stuff and I went, yeah, this is not, this is not a solution to my problem. What, what, and then I started doing some soul searching. I said, what, what do I, what do I, what is it that I've always wanted to do for me that I never got a chance to do because now I have time to do something for me. And I also realized that at the time I was, Listening, uh, previous to this, I had listened to a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is a very important book that you should read if you're in a business and stuff like that. But it helped me realize that um, that book will tell you that everybody has a need to feel important. Everybody has to matter. How you get that feeling of importance is what's different. But the need to feel important as it is as important as the need to eat, right? So if you think you don't, you just look at yourself and, and there's always yeah. something that, that you might, that makes you feel important. Some people, what makes them feel important is that they have a nice car or that they have a nice house, right? And you'll know these people because they're always hosting parties at their house so everybody can go look at their house so everybody can say, oh, you have a beautiful house. I love your house. Oh my God, you're so, you're so lucky, right? That makes them feel like they matter. Other people's tattoos. Other people are like, they get a tattoo and everybody's patting them on the back and going, oh my God, your tattoo's amazing. I love the tattoo. Oh my God, what, what does it mean? You know? And then, then after a while, that fades away. And then they're like, I need another tattoo. Because they're not getting that feeling of importance anymore. Other people's fitness. Other people's sports. Other people's religion. Yeah. Right? There's, there's hobbies and everything. There's people that, I mean, I had a friend that was into RC racing cars and I mean, he was spending two, three thousand dollars on a race car for remote control racing, and and he was like that. He he had a family, he had a job, everything, but his racing was what made him feel like he mattered, yeah. right? And so when you start to identify what it is that makes you feel like you matter in life, then you can kind of direct your life. And what happened was I realized that I had built my self-esteem and my 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 feeling of importance had been based on having a wife and two kids and feeling like I was on top of the world because I had a family. 
then I realized that that was a very bad thing to do because I was putting my self-worth into somebody else. And I, and I realized that it, it can't be about somebody else. It has to be about you. You have to find something that makes you you, that makes you feel like you matter. So stand-up comedy became that for me. The ability to go on stage and make people laugh. That is more therapeutic than anything. You think that, uh, I mean, I've been to so many shows where people go, thank you. I was having a bad day. I was having a bad week. My mom's sick with cancer and, and I needed this laugh. And I'm thinking, you don't even know that your laugh made me feel better about all the shit that I just went through. So it's kind of a, 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 a mutual thing. We get therapy from the audience and the audience gets therapy from us. Wow, that's such a great way to describe it because you're absolutely right. That's what gave you meaning. And because of that, you were okay with rejection. You were sure. okay with that feeling because when you were successful, that feeling was overwhelming as far as... I mean, when you say rejection in comedy, what rejection? The rejection, okay, so maybe... Uh, this guy won't put me on his show or that guy won't put me on his show. Okay. But the moment the audience laughs, there's no rejection. There's acceptance. Now, at first, though, I'm sure there's, there was a lot of audiences that were not laughing. That's a form of rejection and, and what I'm trying to take as far as, especially at the beginning, you're not the headliner, meaning they're not paying to watch you, to see you. Mm -hmm. So that's when you have to be... Maybe, and, and correct me if I'm even funnier, because the fact is I'm not here for you. I'm here for someone else. And you, that maybe I don't find funny, that's what I see that might be uh, a sign of rejection. Maybe that, you know what, this is not for me. This is uh, kind of like maybe I'm not good enough for this. You know, a lot of self-doubt perhaps at first. Um, I think for me it was different because I got laughs from the beginning, mm -hmm. right? And I, I, there's a lot of guys out there that don't get laughs and they, they're persistent. They just go every week and get on an open mic and you're just going like, dude, mm -hmm. stop, yeah. you know, like this is not for you. But at the same time, um, I did have, we've all had terrible shows. We've all had terrible nights, but there's more good nights than bad nights. You know, um, I tell a lot of the young comics that, that start out, I go, you got to look at it like a, like a batting average. You know, when a, when a batter goes up the plate, he doesn't always hit a home run. He doesn't always even hit the ball. Sometimes he walks. Sometimes he strikes out. And so you want to get to where uh, you hit the ball and get on base more than not, right? So I, I would say right now, um, on average, about 95% of my shows are good. It's that one, that 5% that you go, ugh. Definitely, like you said, yeah. that played a big role, your starting shows, because you already knew, or you already had confident enough in, confidence in, in your talent at the beginning. That's the reason why you always wanted to pursue uh, a career in comedy. And when you first found those laughs, that's kind of like reinforcing that message. And whenever you had that maybe bad show or bad um, event that maybe you had, you remember the, your, yeah. your, your goal and also remember the good nights that you had as well. Well, and I had a, a lot of new friends. Mm. Right. And I was now a newly single guy. I got attention from some girls. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, all of the stuff that you that that you go through in a separation where you start to self-doubt, where you start to feel like you're inadequate. You know, like maybe it was me. Maybe 
I wasn't a good enough lover. Maybe I wasn't a good enough man for her, you know? Uh, you, all that kind of starts to go away when you start having other girls go, hey, what's up? How you doing? Oh, my God. Let's go get some drinks. Let's go get some beer. Let's go out. Let's go have a good And all of a sudden, you're in this social situation, and, and, and you go, okay, it's not so bad, you know? So that was nice, too. Of nice. course, and then on the, within that, the, the timing that that happened, of course, it helped you out a yeah. lot. Sam, I want to ask you, how would you describe your comedy style? Like for someone that hasn't seen you in action, how would you describe your style smear? Uh, I don't know. I'm more, I'm a storyteller. Um, I mean, I'm not, um, I don't do slapstick or anything like that. I don't, I don't uh, do one-liners. Um, I just tell a story. And uh, I realized that uh, the audience at a comedy show, when you're on stage, they want to laugh, obviously, but they kind of want to know who you are because they see 10 comedians in one night and they go, okay, well, which one's which? They were all kind of funny. So the more you get personal, the more you talk about yourself, the more you talk about your situation, your upbringing, the more they relate. And now the joke makes more sense, the right? Yeah, and they, they get it because, it, I mean, and a lot, of my, the, a lot of my material is about being cheated on, you know? And I and I stopped doing that material for a while. I was like, I don't want to do that anymore because it's like I'm not I'm over it, you know. But then but then a lot of friends are like, No, you gotta do it. Because there's people in the audience that they're still hurt. They they've been cheated on. And they identify with that. And you're gonna make them feel better. And then so you go, All right, I guess I'll do it. Well, because it's not only laughing at that joke, but now you can relate to can that. Relate. And you can also if you are uh, going through that situation, you can see you as a success story and obviously mm -hmm. get motivated by that. So uh, staying on this topic, is being funny something that you're born uh, with? Is that something you work at? Are you just because I see a lot But thinking back, a lot of the class clowns, maybe in, in school, in high school, can they be comedians all of a sudden because they're funny? Is is what is that um, like? You definitely have to be funny. But being funny and being a stand-up are two different things. For example, um, you, can, you can be funny with your friends pretty easy. You can be witty, you can be sharp, you can be fast. But then when you get on stage, the audience has to like you in 30 seconds or less. You know, and how do you become funny with strangers? People who don't know where you come from, don't know what high school class you were in. They don't know how, how the teacher, the, they don't remember that one time that this happened. You know, so you have to. So I would say that we're all naturally funny to a certain degree. I, I think at least successful comedians have to be naturally funny to a certain degree. But then the skills that it takes to be a stand-up comic, those are developed. You know, it takes years of development to understand how to write a joke, to understand how to tell a joke for the stage. How long did it take you? I know that you had a very successful start, but how many years, months, days did it take you? Uh, how many shows maybe for you? So you know what? I got that. Um, shoot. Well, there's a part of you that has to be naive and ignorant or else you won't stay in this. For example, um, you have to think you're good even when you're bad. You know, like you have to, 
and you'll see it. You'll see people who are new comedians and they'll put their videos on YouTube and you'll go, that's not funny, but they'll go, please watch my video. Please watch my video. You know, and you're like, dude, don't no, take it down. What are you doing? That's disgusting, right? So it took me probably about four or five years wow. to where I really felt like, okay, I kind of kind of know what I'm doing. You know, I kind of get where I'm going. I kind of don't. Was there a specific event? Was there a specific year? Was there something specifically that you can go back and say, you know what? After this show, after someone maybe important gave you really good feedback, was there something that perhaps you remember that said, you know, this is what triggered that after five years that I said, I'm, I got something here? Well, um, I'm not thinking of anything in specific. There's a couple of things that happened. Um, when I first started doing comedy, um, to work at the comic strip was impossible. It was like you had to already be a pro. And so to get to get to work at the comic strip was really hard. There was only like three guys that worked there regularly. Um, and those guys were there every other week. It was one guy, then another guy, then another guy. The owner at the comedy club, he wasn't very open to putting guys on stage. He was like, no, you have to kind of earn the spot, which I understand, you know. He didn't have open mics or anything for us to really show showcase. So it was one of those deals where if you got to work at the comedy club, then it was like, that was like your rite of passage that you made it into the kind of the pros, right? Like you were now a comedian, comedian. So it took me about a year and a half before uh, I got to audition for a spot. You have to audition first and then... Yeah, I auditioned on, on a show. But um, Brian Scalero, the guy who started me, was in town that weekend and he went up to uh, the owner of the club Bart Reed and he said how about giving Sam a spot and Bart came up to me on a Thursday and he goes you ready I said what he goes yeah Sunday you're gonna you're gonna host a show that'll be your audition and I said okay and I was scared shitless <laughs> you know I'd been doing a lot of shows I mean from the time that I started to my first year and a half I probably did 300 shows. 300 shows. Yeah, I was like every uh, every weekend, every open. I mean, we started open mics. I was traveling to to do shows everywhere that I could. I mean, I was like trying to figure out. I would, you know, I probably did 300 shows. Wow. In a year, in a year and a half, you know, I was like constantly doing shows. Is know? that what is required uh, usually in it, to be a, a comedian? Usually, you have practice 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 yes. that's basically what it is yes and a lot of people will be like well i already heard that material yeah it takes like 20 years to really polish everything you know i mean not really but yes i mean there's there's jokes that are there's jokes that i wrote when i first started that i still use because they're good and they're polished you know and you use them and, and the audience just loves them and they're like i love that joke you do about this and it's because you polished it it took you years of doing it wrong and the audience and, and not and then learning which word works with it which which uh how to use that that particular uh joke so yeah there's i, I did a joke the other night uh, i was at the phoenix improv at tempe the tempe improv and i did i did a joke i hadn't done in years that was one of my first jokes you know and i did it and the audience was just loving it you know and so takes years um I did a ton of shows before I got to audition at the, at the comic strip. 
Wow, and when you did that, that's when you got like, you know, I got something here definitely because I know I, how hard it is for anybody just to. Yeah, here locally, mm -hmm. if you got to work at the comic strip, you were like one of the stars. Wow. You were an El Paso comedy star. You know, it was like, it was a big deal. It still is. If you get to work at the comic strip, you're a pro, you know, because it's still still a professional club. You're still, you're, you're hosting a professional show. And so I did that. I, I got to work at the comic strip for about a little bit over a year. And then I started really going like to Los Angeles and trying to work as much as I could there, you know. And and I had made some contacts through the comic strip, and I had made some contacts on, uh, in Los Angeles, and just got to where I was going to Los Angeles once a month. Once a month there. Once a month, yeah. Wow. Was, we'll talk about that in a second. But going back to as as I was telling you earlier, I was watching. Uh, as many as you, uh, videos as you have on YouTube. I was going back your Instagram, which you have over a thousand posts, so that I appreciate all that because I was able to follow a lot of things. So, ahí me di cuenta, Sam, yeah. que hiciste shows para Franco Escamilla, sí, sí, sí. Adal Ramones, alguien para que habla español, para la, la, la gente que conocen, la verdad es gente grandísima en la comedia. Sí. Describe la experiencia. Yo sé que estás hablando ya de llegar a, a Los Ángeles y luego hay ahí. ¿Cómo, ¿Cómo llegó el, el... ¿Qué paso diste o cómo se llegó a trabajar con esa gente y qué es lo que sentiste? Sí, lo que pasó... Um, yo ya llevaba como cuatro años de carrera en inglés y tengo un amigo en Los Ángeles que se llama Richard Villa. Sí, él, de hecho, él fue el que me empezó a conectar. ¿Él lo conociste aquí? Disculpa, a, él lo, a él lo conocí aquí porque él vino a hacer show aquí en El Paso inicialmente. Y no, no hice contacto con él, no, no intercambiamos números ni nada. Pero me fui a Los Ángeles. La primera vez que fui a Los Ángeles, yo sabía que él tenía un show en el Improv de Hollywood. Se llamaba Refried Fridays. Y era un show latino en, en el club de Hollywood. El, el, el Improv, si no saben del Improv, el Improv es de los clubes más prestigiosos de la comedia del mundo. Entonces, él tenía un show en el Improv de Hollywood que se llamaba Refried Fridays. Y era un show latino. Cuando dices latino, ¿es en español, en Spanglish? Es en, es ¿Qué en, significa? Es en inglés, okay. pero casi la mayoría de los comediantes eran latinos. Ok. Ya, entonces como que... Y en Los Ángeles se usa mucho, hay, hay comedia de negritos, hay comedia de latinos, hay comedia de árabes. O sea, hay Middle Eastern Night. <ríe> o sea, hay noches así como que son de tema. Pero aquí, pues, en este show, era el show número uno en Hollywood. Entonces, él siempre vendía su show al 100%. Estaba vento, uh, las ventas de, de boletos hasta el 100%. Y como había tanta gente en sus shows, muchas veces llegaban comediantes muy famosos como Dave Chappelle, Louis C.K. Y hacían, uh, uh, pedían un spot en el show para poder practicar su material. Entonces, estaba lleno el club y llegaban súper famosos. Entonces, Richard Villa era una persona muy importante en, en Hollywood. Y yo ya lo había conocido aquí en El Paso. Entonces, cuando fui a Los Ángeles, yo fui y lo saludé. Me, me presenté con él de nuevo. Y le recordé que nos habíamos conocido en El Paso. Y le ofrecí un show en Deming, Nuevo México. Ok, tú ya, como, como al decir ofrecer, tú ya tenías un show que te habían ofrecido a ti, que ibas a parar. Pero ofrecer significa que te acompaña, ¿verdad? Solo para estar en el mismo. Sí, lo que pasó que cuando yo empecé a trabajar como comediante, me di cuenta que... Uh, los chavos que producían los shows del grupito en el que empecé siempre llegaban tarde. Mm. Llegaba tarde el equipo. Empezaban tarde. Pero cuando empezaban, ya se había ido la mitad de la gente. 
Entonces yo me ofrecí para ayudarles con el sonido, con, con este... Um, la producción. La producción del show. Con el tiempo llegué a, a, a producir los shows yo de parte de ellos. Oh, ok. Entendí. Entonces uh, yo me fui a, a Los Ángeles y le, le comenté a Richard, yo estoy produciendo un show, me gustaría... ¿Cuánto me cobras? Y me gustaría invitarte, pero no te puedo llevar al paso porque es competencia con el club de comedia... Pero tengo un lugar donde hacemos show en Deming, Nuevo México. ¿Qué te parece si hacemos un show ahí? Y me dijo, sí, va, órale, haz los arreglos. Entonces, cuando él vino y vio lo que estábamos haciendo, le gustó mucho. Y me ofreció una franquicia de su show, de Los Ángeles. Entonces, empezamos a hacer su show. Aquí en El Paso, en Las Cruces, en Deming y en el casino, en The Mountain Gods. Así que era el refried, el, el show de, de Richard Villa. Wow. Así lo conociste y cómo ya empezaste ya a abrir con, te digo, que, a trabajar con gente como Adal Ramones, Franco Escamilla. Sí, pues lo, lo que pasó es que él estaba, este, este chavo, este comediante estaba muy conectado y como a los dos, tres años, de, pues ya teníamos una amistad muy fuerte y yo iba cada mes a trabajar con él en los clubs de Los Ángeles. Me dijo, Sam, vamos a hacer español, comedia en español. Dije, pues órale. <risa> dijo, tú hablas español. Um, fui a México, conocí unos comediantes este, ya el stand-up es algo que está pasando en México dijo, ya no es, ya hay una diferencia entre un stand-up pero y un cuenta chistes, dijo, vamos a hacer stand-up en español en Estados Unidos y le dije va, pues me interesa dijo, ¿le entras? dije, le entro Entonces dijo, ok, va a haber show tal fecha en el Madhouse Comedy Club en San Diego va a ser tu show, y vino Eduardo Talavera y uh, Jaime Flores y uh, ¿qué más? No, no, eran Eduardo Jaime y luego Richard y yo estuvimos en ese show y fue mi primera vez haciendo stand-up en español y fue pésimo y horrible. ¿Por qué? Pues porque, qué pasó. Porque tuve que, que tratar de traducir lo que yo ya tenía el material que ya tenía en español y pues no, no tenía la fluidez de, de ser comedia en español. Cuando esto pasó, eso es lo que tú pensaste que ibas a hacer. Dices, nomás voy a traducir lo, mis, mi sí. material a español. ¿No pensaste en, en, en sacar nuevo material al principio? Sí, al principio. Y, luego, y es que te tardas mucho en, en pulir material. O sea, no es, eh, tienes que calar. Tienes que tener un micrófono abierto donde ir a subirte a calar material. No había donde calar material. Entonces, lo, lo más fácil es tratar de traducir los chistes que piensas que funcionan. Para este tiempo dijiste que ya tienes cuatro años, cuatro años. ya haciendo comedia, ya viajando, obviamente pagado, ya sí. profesional, y lo, ya te lo ofrecen en español, dijiste, pues yo hablo español por yo tu mamá, español. entonces no debería ser tan difícil. ¿Qué es lo más difícil que fue el, el cambio de inglés a español? Uh, lo más difícil fue entender que realmente donde yo quería estar es en español. O sea, me, yo, yo prefiero mil veces hacer shows en México y, y con el público latino que en, que en Estados Unidos. Wow, dime por qué. Um, por favor. Yo pienso que el mercado en Estados Unidos está sobresaturado de comedia en inglés, para empezar. Uh, entonces, para, para uno tener éxito en Estados Unidos es mil veces más difícil. Si en México ya se está saturando, ya hay comedia en todos lados. Antes no había. Cuando yo entré... Pues eran los pioneros de la comedia, el tío Robert, el um, Eduardo Talavera, eran los primeros. Entonces, uh, como que yo entré en un momento oportuno porque no había muchos estando peros. Había muchos cuentachistes, muchos payasos, ventrílocos, de todo, uh, personajes, como la Chupitos y, y cosas así. 
pero no había estando peros. Entonces, como que entré en un momento perfecto. Um, pero lo que pasa es que como, como se está descubriendo el stand-up en México, el público tiene hambre de stand-up. Oh, okay. ¿sí? y, y, y el público es muy lindo. O sea, como ellos nos tratan a nosotros, es como, como era en Estados Unidos hace 60 años, cuando empezó el stand-up. Sí, 70 años. Ya tiene 70 años de trayectoria el stand-up. Entonces, en Estados Unidos en los 70, 60, 70, 80 los estandoperos eran los reyes. O sea, era algo que a la gente les fascinaba. Pero ya noventas para acá, 2000 como que ya... Y, y más con, el, con, con redes sociales y internet, como que está sobresaturado el mercado de comediantes. Y para sobresalir es más difícil. Y aparte la gente está muy chiple. Especialmente en Los Ángeles. Por ejemplo, puedes estar en un, en un show y hay cuatro personas en ese show contigo que son estelares. Son gente famosa. Y luego tú, que no eres tan famoso. Entonces, para ganarte un puesto ahí, es, aparte de ser más difícil para el proceso, algo que dijiste y es lo que... Es mucho, es, son muy talentuosos. O sea, estos, estos chavos tienen 30 años trabajando en el stand-up, 20, 25 años. Entonces, um, en el stand-up hay una regla. Los años que llevas de trayectoria es tu edad. ¿Sí? Yo llevo, ya estoy en mi uh, décimo primer año, 11 años. Qué bueno que dijiste 11, porque yo me quedé sí. así. Ok, 11. Sí. sí, 11 años. Yo soy un niño de 11 años en stand-up. Oh. ¿Y en español? En ¿Cuánto español, llevas? En español, ya, en español ya voy para 8 años. ¿8 años ya? 8, 7, 7, 7 años. Oh. Dijiste algo muy interesante, porque yo pensaría, obviamente, el, el hacer reír a alguien en inglés y en español es, es di eh, muy diferente, pero dijiste también que el, el público, cómo te trata a ti también es diferente. Sí. De hecho, um, algo que yo aprendí en, uh, haciendo comedia es de que, en realidad, todos somos seres humanos y lo chistoso es lo chistoso. Seas de aquí o en tu chino, o seas donde sea, es chistoso. Si, eres, si es algo chistoso, es chistoso. Oh, tú, sí. Y aparte tú tienes algo que muy poca gente tiene. Alguien que, que nació en Estados Unidos, que es con lo que se considera gringo, que está hablando español, que lo habla muy bien, por cierto. Sí. Y luego tiene pues, las historias, me imagino, de tu papá y tu mamá, que es obvio que la gente sí, hablo, se relaciona. Hablo, sí, hablo de eso. Y la gente se relaciona en la frontera. Uh -huh. Pero ya tengo un poquito más... Bueno, la pandemia como que nos echó todo a perder. Pero antes de la pandemia yo ya tenía un año trabajando una vez al mes en, en la Ciudad de México. Y ahí no relacionan tanto lo de la frontera. Ahí sí es. Ahí sí, ahí sí ellos, ¿qué que les, que les importa que tu papá sea de gringo o que tu mamá sea de, de Chihuahua? O sea, al contrario, ni siquiera aprecian a Chihuahua. ¿sí? Entonces tienes que empezar a, a salirte de... De, de, de tu zona de, de confort, me sí, imagino, ¿no? De lo que estás acostumbrado. Sí, y, y empezar a observar y, y, y ver las cosas que, que a un mexicano, por ejemplo, si lo hace reír. Entonces, este, son, son, son cositas que ellos, que ellos no lo, a, los, a la gente de la Ciudad de México no los vas a hacer reír con cualquier cosa fronteriza. Entonces, es, ha sido un reto para mí, pero el reto más grande es agarrar la fluidez de, del habla. Los comediantes de, de la Ciudad de México, hay muchos que no son famosos, que son súper buenos uh -huh. y son súper rápidos para hablar. Y a mí me ha mejorado mucho mi español porque estoy trabajando con ellos constantemente. Y, y es menos fronterizo. Estoy tratando de no ser tan fronterizo. Tampoco voy a ser chilango, ¿eh? <risa> no, hombre. Pues, 
Pues el otro día, no, o sea, no, tampoco, pero sí, sí veo cómo ellos este, escriben sus chistes, cómo los, cómo los acomodan, que estoy aprendiendo a, a escribir en español a otro nivel. Cuando escribes en español, ¿piensas en español? Sí. Estás ya, por, por, porque yo me, me refiero, porque normalmente para traducirte en inglés y en español, en realidad pues te vas a tardar más y luego ya llegas, te digo, no tengo yo experiencia, pero me imagino que ya es hasta más difícil o a lo mejor corres el riesgo de que no funcione, entonces te obligas tú a, a pensar en español para escribirlo en español. Sí, yo, yo pienso en español ah. y también pienso en inglés, pero cuando estoy hablando en español estoy pensando en español, pero pues así, mi mamá es de Chihuahua y crecí hablando español con mi mamá, entonces... No era lo mismo de, de estar traduciéndolo de inglés a español o de español a inglés. Es otro idioma. ¿sí? Y este... Sí me, sí me trabo un poquito porque... Trato de decir lo correcto. No de nada más de traducirlo. Nada más Tratas traducir. de usar la palabra que va con sí, lo que estoy estás tratando diciendo. de armar mi vocabulario. Tener un, un vocabulario bien, bien uh, establecido. Bien profundo. ¿sí? No redactar las cosas de una manera de que no sean fronterizas, que no sean uh, pochismos, uh -huh. ¿sí? como parquea el carro o laquea la puerta. Que por cierto, esas se usan ya están en México. Sí, ya se usan. Pero... Y lo que, sí, lo que sí aprendí en México es que utilizan palabras en inglés. Ajá. Sí, por ejemplo, yo tengo un chiste donde hablo de homeless y digo, ¿ubican los homeless? <risa> sí. Ok. Bueno, si no, pues son vagabundos. Ah, tienes que, pero pues ya aprendes, aprendes a, a cuando estás hablando y dices, ubica está, sí, si sí, sí, te quedan viendo así como que no, bueno, estoy hablando de los vagabundos, cuando yo diga homeless son vagabundos. Y tu ya. chiste lo sigues usando la palabra homeless, homeless. porque va más, okay. sí, porque es parte del es chiste, el proceso, pero claro. la mayoría de la gente ubica un homeless. Exacto, no, y hay sí. bastante, y, y estoy pensando mientras me dices eso, los podcasts que yo escucho en español, usan la mayoría, no la mayoría, pero muchísimas palabras en inglés. Ya. Y oye, a lo mejor estoy viendo podcast muy fresones, pero la verdad no, es que pero sí. La, dicen cringe. ¿verdad? Cringe es uh, cringe. Pero en el México ya se usa cringe. O sea, tú, oh, lo que dice mi yeah. niña mucho. Cositas así, uh -huh. términos así. Stalker. Ándale. Creeper. Ese es creepy o creeper. O sea, son, y son cosas que usan en, en, en México. Y luego, pues, um, hace poco, antes de que pasara la pandemia, en febrero del año pasado, bueno, de este año. Este año. Sí, 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 ya no puedo, ya no sé. Ni... Sí, en febrero de este año fui a Guatemala a hacer stand-up. Y saludos a mis amigos de Guatemala, si me están viendo, stand-up comedy Guatemala. Y ahí estaba más nervioso aún, porque dije, ¿y si el español mexicano va a traducir, a el humor mexicano va a traducir a, al, al humor, humor guatemalteco? ¿Y cuál fue la respuesta? Sí. Sí. Sí, y de hecho, lo que me di cuenta es que uh, México... Es como el país uh, más fuerte de Latinoamérica. Uh -huh. Entonces, la mayoría, la mayoría de las personas, sean de Argentina, de Chile, de, de Honduras, Guatemala, ellos ven programación mexicana. Exacto. Entonces, entienden, aunque no, aunque no se utilicen las mismas palabras en, en la vida cotidiana de ellos, pero entienden el humor mexicano. Entonces, como que... Oh, Exacto, y además eso ya no lo traducen los programas porque está en español. Por ejemplo, yo me tocó cuando fui a Brasil, 
este, la gente, pues, el, el portugués y el español más o menos, pero dice, el chavo, el chavo, el chavo. Ah, sí, el chavo, chavo. y lo hay todo, sí, todos el sí. chavo, porque hasta la fecha, igual que en México se ve, pero como dices tú, no lo traducen, sí, por cierto, a portugués, sí. pero lo dejan en español, que el español, como dices tú, es uno de los más de México, pues, de los que se queda más fuerte. Y yo veo programas en, en, en Netflix de España cada rato y, no, coño, <risa> No soy un gilipollas. No, no. Y dices, ah, caray. Y vas aprendiendo. Entonces, para mí es algo que es un reto también. Eh, yo lo que quiero es ser lo más internacional posible. Esa es tu meta. Esa es mi meta. Ah. Antes de regresar a los momentos memorables como el que tuviste en Guatemala, quiero hacerte una pregunta sobre México. Cuando te metiste a la Comedia de México, ¿hubo gente mexicana o latina que a lo mejor no te aceptó bien? Ya ves que acá hay casos de discriminación. Bueno, eh, eh, si me quieres explicar si a lo mejor tuviste algunos problemas con gente ya de ahí que ha trabajado, que ha querido y a lo mejor tú les, qui les quitaste el puesto que a lo mejor ellos pensaron que, que era de ellos o a lo mejor no tuviste una experiencia así. Hasta la fecha todos se han portado muy bien conmigo. Y si tienen envidias o no tienen envidias, no sé. Um, pero yo cuando voy a México les explico que no estoy ahí para tumbarles el puesto. De hecho, yo voy para mejorar mi español y como que aprecian eso, uh -huh. ¿sí? Porque realmente yo tengo trabajo, o sea, yo tengo trabajo en, en comedia en español en Estados Unidos y tengo trabajo en inglés, trabajo en los dos. Entonces, yo no, yo no voy a México para hacerme una estrella en México, um, aunque me gusta trabajar en México, yo no estoy ahí para estar en la escena de la comedia mexicana y, y estar tomando gente, perdón, de supuesto. De hecho, ellos, la mayoría de ellos están más avanzados que yo porque están en Televisa o en, en, en uh, TV Azteca o lo que sea. Tienen sus programas, tienen 100 mil, 200 mil seguidores en, su, en sus redes sociales. Entonces, como que yo, yo, vengo, yo vengo y me llevo bien con todos y yo creo que ellos ven eso de mí y me tratan bien también. Lo aceptan y ven tu motivo. Lo aceptan, sí, okay. y ven... ven y aparte los, los dueños de los de los uh, clubes de comedia en México han sido muy muy lindos conmigo. Uh, saludos a Carla y a Tuti en el Beer Hall, o sea, que es un club que donde trabajo. Ahí es como mi casa en México. Uh, también Iván y Mónica este, en el Woco, sí, en el 139. O sea, son, son lugares ahí en, en la Ciudad de México donde hay comedia. Y ellos me aprecian hasta cierto punto. Me llevo bien con ellos. Yo... Yo trato de respetar a todos y aprecio lo que están haciendo. Hay comediantes que, que tienen muchos años y son muy buenos, pero no son famosos. Y hay comediantes que son famosos y no tienen tantos años, pero... ¿Por qué pasa eso, Sam? ¿Por qué puede ser? Porque a mí también me toca que hay mucha gente que, que yo veo que digo, yo no sé por qué le gusta a esta gente y a lo mejor alguien... Y estábamos hablando de, de, de gente así que son muy buenos, bueno, en nuestra opinión, y que les falta algo o que nada más está en el proceso que ahí va. ¿Por qué pasa eso? Todo tiene que ver con... O sea... Eh, yo pienso que es show business. ¿sí? El negocio de... La, del show. Y hay gente que no es buena para negocios. Son buenos para contar chistes, pero no son buenos para negocios. Pasa muy seguido, por ejemplo... Tienes que entender... Uh, por, hay una regla en la comedia que, que te dicen cuando entras... Cuando empiezas a trabajar con los comediantes dicen... Trata todos bien porque nunca sabes quién va a ser el próximo productor. Hay chavos que no son buenos comediantes y, 
y este, tu tendencia es burlarte de ellos. Y luego, cuando menos piensas, ellos ya están trabajando en Comedy Central y son los encargados de buscar talento. Wow, y ahí es donde dices... Y ahí dices... Oh, ¿Qué pasó ahí? Si me caía bien este chaparrito, ¿ah? Sí, lo traté bien mal, <risa> ya no me va a dar... No me va a dar. Entonces, hay, a mí me ha pasado que hay gente que viene y me dice... Sam, tú siempre fuiste chido conmigo, tengo este proyecto, lo haces. Sí, entonces... Tiene que ver con quién conoces, como en cualquier otro negocio. Tienes que tratar la comedia como negocio. Tú es que sabes negocio. muy bien de negocio. O sea, si para triunfar en el negocio, no nomás es, eres bien chistoso y te van a caer las cosas solas. No. Tienes que tratarlo como negocio. Tienes que ver qué oportunidad aquí, con quién juntarte, relacionarte. ¿Es así como lo has tratado ah, tú hasta el momento? Sí, a mí me ayudó mucho este, trabajar con este señor Richard Villa. Él fue el que... Uh, me, bueno, él, él hizo un programa en Netflix que se llamaba Sigue la Risa. Y en ese programa me invitó a participar. Y ahí pues trabajé con muchos comediantes de México. Uh, trabajé con uh, Mónica Escobedo. Trabajé con um, Tío Robert, ese güey. Um, Isaac Salamé. Um, El Cojo Feliz. O sea, trabajé con muchos de los que estaban. Eran grandes comediantes. Hasta Sofía Nina Rivero salió en ese programa. Entonces... Uh, al poco, hice un amigo que se llama uh, Minister Marcos y él es comediante de Cabo, del Cabo, de San, Cabo San Lucas. Cabo, quiero decir Cabo San Lucas, pero es como San Juan del Cabo, algo así se llama. Pero es Cabo San Lucas. Y él este, me conectó con la producción de um, un programa que se llama Está Parado. Uh, Están Parados. Están Parados. Ya ni me acuerdo. <risa> Están Parados, que era un programa de Adal Ramones. Uh -huh. Y la producción me habló y me invitó a, a participar en un programa de televisión. ¿Qué sentiste de estar, por ejemplo, con alguien que ves en televisión, que tú sabes, la verdad, que es muy grande? ¿Sientes tú, estás más nervioso, no lo estás? ¿Cómo lo tomaste sí en estuve, ese momento? Sí estuve nervioso, pero también sentí como que había logrado hasta cierto punto una meta. Sí. Um, me sentí halagado de poder hacerlo en México, porque fue la primera vez que fui a trabajar en la Ciudad de México. Me sentí um, justificado, ¿sí? Porque cuando haces comedia, mucha gente se burla de ti y te dice que estás perdiendo el tiempo. Mi, mi papá a mí me decía, mi hijo, tú tienes mucho talento en cuanto al acero, pero de esto la comedia ya déjalo, te, este, estás perdiendo el tiempo. Es cuando le dices, ya me invitaron a un programa de televisión, voy a ir a grabar a México... Um, este grabo tal fecha, voy a grabar con fulano de tal, o sea, como que se quedan como que wow, o sea ahí la llevas, ¿sí? entonces como que no fue mi mejor presentación, para nada o sea, también todavía me faltaba mucho pero um, el momento de llegar ahí el momento de llegar ahí, es, no las cámaras el, el público, el estudio fue en el estudio XEW de Televisa me imagino Televisa, ¿no? sí, el estudio de Agustín Lara, ahí donde está el piano de Agustín Lara, o sea, fue algo increíble um, pero había, había mucha gente eh, y, y inclusive ya comediantes o ex compañeros de la comedia que ya te habían agarrado idea o envidia y pierdes muchos amigos con el tiempo, sí, porque empiezan a decir al verte exitoso, sí, eso es lo que sí, empiezan a decir, ah, no es ni tan chistoso él, porque si sí le dan oportunidad a mí yo soy más chistoso que él y te empiezan a agarrar idea. Entonces, uh, cuando yo ya empecé a, a grabar en televisión, pues yo sen me sentí vindicado de esta cierta forma de... ¿Y a cuántos años llevabas todo esto ya para poner contexto? 
Llevaba, en la comedia en español apenas llevaba año y medio. Año y medio, y en la comedia en sí llevabas seis. Seis y medio. Entonces todo esto llegó después uh -huh. de unos siete, ocho años, sí. cuando ya lo hiciste. Cuando ya empecé, sí. Y luego también grabé, como grabé, había grabado el de uh, Sigue la risa, que era, ese, ese lo grabamos para DirecTV. ¿Aquí en Estados Unidos? En Estados Unidos, uh -huh. en un teatro en Selma, California. Y, y era un teatro chiquito, pero lo, lo podían llenar y, y se veía bien en cámara. Entonces la producción se fue a Selma, nos invitaron a Selma. Es cuando vinieron todos de México a grabar. Y grabamos ahí, ahí nos hicimos amigos. Y, y um, salió el programa ahí de... Uh, sigue la risa, se grabó para DirecTV, tenían un un canal que estaban empezando que se llamaba Ya Veo, que iba a ser como streaming en español. No se armó y la producción vendió un programa a Netflix. Y un día yo iba a California a hacer un show y me etiquetaron etiquetaron en mi Facebook. Acabo de ver a Sam en Netflix y lo acra y lo ya cuando nos pensé ya estaba el programa en Netflix. Estaba Sam en Netflix. Sí, y wow, o sea, porque nosotros no pensamos que iba a salir en DirecTV, salió en Netflix. Muchos de los comediantes más grandes este, no les pareció porque ellos ya tenían tratos con Netflix para sus especiales. Entonces, como que, hey, este, no tenías permiso para ponerlo en Netflix. O sea, a ellos sí les afectó, pero a mí no me Oye, afectó. Oye, pero tú estabas, yo, yo estoy estaba... en Netflix, acá foto acá con la tele. <ríe> sí, no, sí. Y luego ya ese programa ya no está en Netflix porque duran dos, tres años y lo, y lo, lo, y lo, reciclan. lo, lo reciclan. Y ahorita está en Prime, oh. en Amazon Prime. Entonces, este ya cuando, cuando me empiezo a sentir como que no he hecho comedia en mucho tiempo, no soy buen comedia, porque empieza uno... Entonces, a tener esas dudas. Entonces dices, eh, pero yo estuve en Netflix y estuve en Prime. Y ahorita, que, estoy en Prime. ahorita estoy en Prime. <risa> Entonces, ¿cuál no. problema? En este tema, Sam, ¿cuáles son los momentos más memorables que tú recuerdas de tu carrera? Que dices, tú sabes que estos dos, tres, yo sé que ya hablaste de, de uno, no sé si a lo mejor, que dices, tú sabes que estos momentos, si se acaba mi carrera, esto es, esto es lo que hice. Es chistoso que me preguntes eso, porque yo siempre he dicho, si, si mañana dejara de ser comediante, podría decir que fui comediante exitoso. Uh -huh. sí. um, el show que, que yo pienso que me, que me hizo sentir como que ya lo había logrado, a cierto punto pasó el año pasado, hace un poquito más de un año eh, le estaba abriendo yo el show a Franco Escamilla en uh, Ontario, California en el, la arena de Toyota okay. Toyota Arena entonces um, de pura casualidad estaban mis hijas conmigo en Los Ángeles ¿sí? este, andaban, ellas fueron a Disneylandia porque es una tradición familiar de siempre ir a Disneylandia y andaban ahí en Disneylandia ellas un día y yo hice shows todo ese fin de semana, pero me tocaba un show con Franco el sábado en la noche en Toyota Auditorium en, on en Ontario, como ya mencioné. Entonces, uh, mis hijas pues no sabían qué iban a hacer el sábado en la noche, les dije, ¿quieren ir al show? Y ellas iban conmigo cuando, cuando iniciaba, a veces iban a algún show, pero no habían ido en muchos años a verme en, en vivo. Entonces sabían que soy comediante, pues viajo mucho, este, muchas, muchos, ellos saben que es mi trabajo, entonces no es como que no saben y, y han visto así fam, que, que programas de televisión y, y este, que estoy de gira con Franco, que estoy de gira con Alan, que estoy de, así que estoy en diferentes giras, 
Y ahí a sus amigos con los trastistas tigres, a mi papá estuvo trabajando con ellos esta semana, lo que sea. Entonces, los amiguitos de ellos saben que soy comediante. Entonces, uh, les dije, pues vamos. Y dijeron, ok, vamos. Y ahí, y ahí vamos en camino al, al show. Y llegando a, a, al auditorio, se voltearon a ver las dos y me voltearon a ver y dijeron, aquí va a ser el show. Así que sí, aquí va a ser. ¡Wow! Está bien grande, papá. Así. Y luego me dijo mi hija, la más grande, me dijo, ¿cuántos comediantes va a haber en el show? Le dije, ¿dos? <ríe> sí. Dijo, ¿qué? Dije, dos. Yo y Franco. Y lo dijo, o sea, ¿que eres el abridor, el abridor, el abridor? Le dije, sí, soy el abridor, el abridor, el abridor. Dice, ¿no va a haber otros comediantes? No, porque pues ella había ido a clubs donde... Se suben tres, cuatro comediantes, sí, entonces dije... No. Y obviamente más chiquito, nada que ver con la arena que ibas sí. a estar, ok. Y luego dije, no, voy yo, entonces... O sea que... Digo, sí, yo soy el abridor de Franco, y lo ¡Wow! Se acercaron así, y, y entramos a, a la garita de seguridad, y, y luego, pues ahí con los radios, y... Ah, Sam Butler, sí, él es talento, o sea, pásenlo, entonces ya... Seguridad no se corta por atrás y estamos caminando en las arenas. Hay túneles donde vas caminando para llegar a, a los camerinos. Vamos llegando a los camerinos. El camerino lleno de comida, de diferentes cosas. Franco salió del camerino de él a saludarlas, a conocerlas. Les dijo, uh, me da mucho gusto que estén aquí. Por fin las conozco en persona. Siento que ya las conozco porque su papá habla muy bien de ustedes. Pero por fin tengo el gusto de conocerlas en persona. Me dice, y me da gusto que estén aquí para que vean a su papá triunfar. Entonces me queda así como que... Y ella dice, ah, qué amable es Franco. Entonces les dieron pues asientos en, en, el, en el show. Enfrente. Eh, casi, casi enfrente, pero como para un ladito. Y me fue muy bien. Había cinco mil personas en el auditorio. Eran de este último... Uh, esta última gira de payaso. Y después, ellas se quedaron a, a ver todo el show. Uh, me vieron a mí y ya cuando bajé del escenario me puse a ver si las podía encontrar y ya las encontré y les dije aquí estoy, si necesitan algo y se quedaron y disfrutaron mucho el show de Franco dijeron wow papá es bien chistoso Franco nos gustó mucho su show pero ese fue un momento donde yo sentí como que vindicado por tanto sacrificio, tanto trabajo tantos años de, de manejando yo tengo una Toyota Sequoia 2005 tiene 600 mil millas y esa es la que llevas por todos lados. Esa, eh, un, sí, y te, tengo también uh, mi troca, la que tengo, tengo una Subaru, esa ya tiene 200 mil millas. Tengo otra Chevy Colorado que también tiene como 200. Yo llevo más de un millón de millas en carretera. Fácil. Ah. Oye, y en ese momento sentiste más el orgullo, porque sentiste que le diste orgullo a tus hijas. Sí. El show, obviamente, abrirle a Franco Escamilla, sí, estar en sí, una sí. arena grande, pero como lo describiste, suena más como que, ¿sabes que Eran que mis hijas vieran que lo logré, que, que soy... Sí, ya llegué. Wow. Ellas ya pudieron ver, o sea, pudieron ver que ya era como un concierto de rock. O sea, llegaron y hay seguridad y hay personas encaminándonos y, y traen sus radios, audífonos y, y es camerinos y, y ya es y, y, y las fotos antes del show y todo eso entonces dicen 
wow, papá, o sea, no, no teníamos ni idea. Nosotros todavía te hacíamos haciendo shows en clubs de comedia. Que cuando yo empecé a trabajar en clubs de comedia también es un logro muy grande. Claro, pero ellas todavía sobre a, tu edad, a su edad, me imagino yo, que no es lo mismo que ya estar ahí no. con la gente, con la experiencia. Yeah. Y lo que sentiste, es, y justo que estábamos platicando antes de empezar, yo me relaciono mucho porque como te dije, también mi niña vive conmigo hace nueve años. Y este, y recientemente, mi niña ya está grande, pero es, es, me, me, me escribió una carta diciendo, hey, dad, I just want to let you know that I appreciate your time. I know how yeah. hard you're working uh, at work, at the hair salon, your podcast, and you still give me time to talk about nonsense and this and that. He's only thinking, that's it. Like, that's, that's one of the main reasons. Not that I say, no, 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 because there's that selfish part as well. But the fact that your daughters, again, saw the effort, I'm like, you know, I'm doing something right because mm -hmm. she's seeing the effort. Regardless of the outcome, regardless, nadie me va a ver, nada, eso lo demás, lo, you're, lo you're, menos. It's that that my daughter's already noticing, and that's what hopefully she takes back. Actions speak louder than words. Exactly. And our kids are imitators. They yeah. imitate us. So if you're a good person, they'll be a good person. If you're always a, if you're always giving them, and there's there's a few bad apples, but for the most part, if you if there's a bad kid, because their parents usually suck, you know, but if but the kids are imitators, so my kids got to see me do that show, and it was like it was like a, a validation yeah. of all the sacrifice, and it get and it, it also helped them change the channel and go, okay, my dad's the real deal, yeah, you know. And, of course, that's who you matter to. You matter to your family, you know. So they go, my dad's the real deal. My dad's got going somewhere with this. Wow, that was great. And thank you so much for yeah. sharing. Senor, going into comedy uh, still, if what advice would you give new comedians? People maybe, maybe not as new, but maybe that they've been only a year thinking about giving up. What advice would you give to people in the comedy world? I think if you've been doing comedy for about a year consistently and you're thinking about giving up, I think that's a sign that you're a real comedian. Okay. <laughs> I think that we're always thinking about quitting. You know, I think I think it's one of those things where you go, God, this is so hard. I got to go so far. I've driven 12 hours for a 10-minute show. What makes you continue that? What makes you, like, you drive 12 hours and you get no laughs. What makes no, you kind I, of like. I get laughs. Well, wait, wait. Yeah, I'm, no. I'm talking about giving some advice for <laughs> someone else. That yeah, no. They no, don't I, get those laughs. So, like, what is it that they can like they look forward to what advice you have for them if you're to not, go on or you know maybe yeah if you're not if you're not stuff. getting laughs then looking doing something else there's a lot of artistic uh ways to express yourself there's a lot of things you can do but if you're if you're constantly going on stage and you're not getting laughs and it's it's maybe not for you and it's okay you make your neighborhood friends laugh that's great but if it but if you're up there and you're constantly failing and and you're just going to be stubborn about it well good But if you're getting some laughs, if, if, if you're getting some laughs and people and, and you get about 50% laughs, 50% no laughs, then keep working it. You'll get there. You know, there's guys that, are, that were terrible for years and then one day they're geniuses. Oh. You go, wow, that guy, we never expected that guy to be funny. And then one day they just get it. But uh, if, if you're really not getting any laughs, I can't see why you would do it. And if you are, it's just... Go just on, keep keep continue. working. Get up every get up as much as you can. Get up on every stage you can get on, and even if it's karaoke, that was something. I, I I'm a terrible singer. And I have a friend. He just won like entertainer uh, comedy comedian of the year in Las Vegas. Uh, his name is Butch Bradley, and Butch came down and did a show. And he goes, 
let's go to karaoke. I go, let's go to karaoke. He goes, all right, you're going to sing, right? And I go, no, I don't sing. He goes, no, you're going to sing. That's stage time, bro. You get up there, you're going to sing a song because you're going to work on your stage time. And I was like, and ever since then, I, I sing at karaoke. That's what you do because, you know, wow. It's stage time. Yeah. And I realized that if I change some of the lyrics and make it funny, then it, then it's a comedy show. <laughs> <laughs> Especially know. with some drinks in, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah why not? But but it, you can't not take advantage of the stage time. You know, it's it's an opportunity to get up in front of people and perform. So if you're not if you're not funny, which generally speaking, people who aren't funny fall away. You know, people who they, they just give up. It's a very hard business. I mean, even people who are funny give up. Life gets in the way. You have a kid. You have, you know, you you go have another kid, and then all of a sudden you got to work extra hours. And and the people that choose to continue, like let's say they're funny again, we they they have talent, but then like you said, there's life ahead. But the ones that continue the path, or at least trying, is it the ones that they believe in themselves more than the others? Or is it what's the difference between both funny, but one of them will stick to it, and the other one, as soon as something happens, they give up. What's the difference? Okay, there's two types of comedians. Okay. There's the ones that do it for social reasons. They want to hang out with other people that are like them, that are funny, that they understand, that they get that they get along with. It's being part of a group. And just like there's a kickball league, softball league, there's like comedians that do it for social reasons. They just want to go out and tell jokes with their friends. That's cool. And then there's the guys that are like me that are driven because they want to be professional comedians. And so it took me a long time to realize that there was that not everybody's going to be a professional comedian. They might do professional shows, but it's, they're doing it for social reasons. So it took me probably six to eight years of my career to figure out that not everyone is going to drive 12 hours to do a 10-minute show. Not everyone's going to go across the country for an opportunity. Not everyone's going to save every dollar they got to put it into a road trip and then go save more dollars to put it into a road trip. Not everyone's going to do that. But they'll get up on Wednesday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night. They'll work at the Common Club. Doesn't mean they're not funny, but you have to understand what the end game is for that comic. If the comedian really wants to be a professional comedian, he'll get there. He'll figure it out. He'll sleep in his car. Jay Leno slept in his car outside of the improv for years. But that's because he wanted it. it once I realized that, a lot of my problems stopped. Wow. Because I really tried to push everyone. Come on, we can do this. Let's go. We, we got this. We're going to make it. Come on. And then they're like, who does he think he is? Why is he always bossing me around? Why does he want to be in charge of everything? Because I was the driving force. Because then it dawned on me. No. They're happy here. They're happy doing uh, a bar on the west side. They're happy doing a bar in downtown. They're happy uh, doing a, a comedy club, a, a local event. They're happy with that. They, they don't mind going to Midland and doing a show. They don't mind going to Deming and doing a show. But they, they would love to go to L.A. and do a show. But they're not going to give everything up and go live in their car to do, to do a show. Wow. You, know? you think the same thing applies to everything? I think life? it does. Yeah. I think you have to re decide 
whether you do something because you love it and it's a hobby and, and, and you get to hang out with people that are like you mm-hmm. or you want to take it to the top. Yeah. And once you decide that, then you can make your choices. I made my choice. I wanted to be a professional comedian. That's it. And you live with the consequences, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's it. I mean, that means putting 600,000 miles into your vehicle. You know, that means not having, I don't have a brand new vehicle. If I took the money that I invested in comedy, I could have a, uh, uh, I don't even live in a really big house, but I could have a, a really big house with a swimming pool and I can have two brand new vehicles. Easy. But every dime, every dollar, you get paid on these gigs, but you don't get paid big money at first. It takes a while to build that. But you take every dollar you got and you put it back into that, and it, eventually it comes back. But are you willing to eat bologna sandwiches on the road because that's all you can afford because you got to go do this gig and you're going to spend, you have a thousand bucks, but you got to get to New York and back. Yeah. For a, for a gig in some basement in some little club. Because that's New York. New York, this, like the, I had a, a show at the Greenwich Village Comedy Club and it's literally a basement that seats 20 people. And you're flying to New York to go do the, the Greenwich Village Comedy Club. You understand? That's like you get there and you go, you got to be kidding me. I flew to New York to do a show in front of 30 people in a basement. But it's New York and you're getting your you're getting your feet in the door and you're meeting, you're networking. You know, and once you understand that, then you go, it's an investment. It's an investment in myself. My friend Monique Marvez, she's a really big comedian. She said, Sam, if you won't invest in yourself, how can you get anybody else to invest in you? How can you talk someone into investing in you if you're not willing to invest in yourself? Yeah. You're not even willing to invest in yourself. Why would anybody else be willing to invest in you? Yeah. The same thing applies to believing in yourself, sure. right? Wow, that's so true because, again, we're, I know we're talking about comedy and specific in what you do, but that thing applies to everything. It does. A lot of people want to be fit. Are you willing to do this? No. A lot of people want to be rich or want to have a business or want to do this. Are you willing to do Mm -hmm. this? And the answer is yes at first when they're motivated, right, that initial. But when no one's watching, when it's really hard, are you going to continue doing it? And most people, the answer is going to be no. No. Right? Only the ones that are like this. But what that tells me is not only in comedy but also in in life, life. whatever, everything that you do, So it, it tells me that that's the same sense of urgency, the same thing that it applies to everything else. Mm-hmm. So, wow. Nice. Well, thank you for sharing, Sam. I want to talk about podcast. Quisiera hablar de podcast. 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 Tienes uno muy bueno. Gracias. La verdad que, que sigo desde que encontré el mundo de podcast. Eh, antes de hablar eso, I wanted to share with you my experience when I first started. As you know, this is episode four, so I just started. Uh, I've been working on it for about four months, thinking about it, decorating, YouTube videos on best microphones, on... Uh, uh, These are really good, by the way. Thank you. On the uh, software that I use to edit, on getting people. I mean, I it's a lot of time, a lot of work, right? So my experience has been one of the best days my entire life, to be honest with you, was when I first had my, my, my two guests, Shane and Lizzie. Mm-hmm. 
because they showed up. By the way, my first guest, the first person, <laughs> which I'll, how, I have to share that story later that's on. That's funny. That's how I felt the uh, first time I got laid. I was like, she showed up. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best day she showed up. Yeah. When they first showed up, because the first guest that I had thought about since day one, it was a, a, a real estate agent and una muchacha con un, una niña, creo. And I thought her story was really good. I won't tell you the, the, the whole story, yeah. but she basically said yes to me and didn't show. Oh, yeah. Yo estaba aquí, así como, así como estaba ya listo esperando acá. Like, with my questions, extremely nervous. So, bueno, doesn't show up, whatever, right? So, then, uh, going back to, like, that feeling that Shane was here, Lizzie was here, that, that they were here and... and and I was able to complete the interview. Everything was good. It was one of the happiest days ever. Like, me fui a mi casa. Ya, ya estaba tarde. Me llevé una botella de champaña que agarré yeah. aquí de la... Del, alguien me regaló, por cierto. Disculpen, porque si alguien me regaló una botella hace un año que abrió el salón. No me acuerdo quién. Me la llevé. I was texting everyone. Hey, oh my God. And they're showing them pictures. And I felt so good. It was like... it was Even though it was just the start of the, of the project, uh, of the process... But yeah, like I saw something now tangible, right? Mm -hmm. Now, with that said, one of the worst days ever was when I first uploaded that. Why? Because uh, when I uploaded everything, like I, um, I do the editing of the video. I mean, I know I saw all the mistakes I made. I saw how nervous I was. I saw all the words that I invented. Like, I don't know, like uh, it was a whole mess, right? And uploading that was the worst, putting it myself out there for the first time. Again, I, I'm not uh, too into social media or sharing my, my life. So when I did that to me, I was like, ay, Dios mío, here it goes. Boom. And, and I was just there in my room. And ella me estaba viendo, like, hey, no, you're nomás, like, answering to people, thank you, and whatever. And then one of the worst things was um, some of my friends were sharing the video on Facebook. Yeah. And I know that's good thing, right, because they're supporting me. But I know I did really bad. You know, porque, porque <laughs> like, yeah. thank you, but I don't want to show it to people. And that was my experience. And again, since you recently, well, not recently, it's been about six months, uh, about July six of 2020. Months. It's a very successful podcast. Thank you. So tell us about your experience. Maybe that, what I just described, maybe it's similar to yours. Maybe it's not. If you can talk about um, that, please. It, it actually is. I don't have a lot of video on my uh, YouTube channel of me doing stand-up. There's not a lot, and it's on purpose. Dime por qué. Um, when I was a kid, I had a presentation at church, and I, I decided to record it. And I, and I remember that I thought I had done a really good job on my presentation, and then when I saw it, I hated it. So then I realized that I was only hurting myself by watching it. Why didn't I just stick to the idea that it was good? And so then I got this phobia of recording myself and watching myself because one of my friends that's kind of like a, she's a psychologist, she says, you're a real artist. A real artist is never satisfied with their work. And that's the bottom line is we're, we're so, so, uh, so self-critical that uh, we become our own worst enemy. So what I did is I decided, okay, you're never really good at stand-up until about five years in I'm not posting anything I'm just gonna be good and eventually when it's on TV it'll be good uh -huh. right and people will see it and people will like it and people will like me and that's when I know it's good 
And that's probably one of the dumbest things I ever did. (laughs) (laughs) Because even now, I watch my podcast and I go, ugh. Because we don't like ourselves that way. We don't, it's not who we think we are. Yeah. We have this image of how cool we are. And we think, um, this is who I am. And then you watch this person on camera and there's a disconnect between you and, and you. And you go, that's not me. That's not who I think I am. That's not how I sound. That's not the person. And then you start becoming very critical and, and judgmental because you're basing it on the person you think you are. Mm-hmm. But what you have to realize is that you are that person to everybody else. They see absolutely nothing wrong with it because that's who they know. So you have to get to used to the fact that that's you. Okay. I It took me a while to be able to watch my own podcast and, and listen to myself talk. Before, now I now I, I know what my voice sounds like outside of my head, but it took me a while. And, and, it, and it does it with comedy too, but I have a lot of videos of doing, me doing stand-up, but I don't like any of them. I don't even like the one that's on Netflix. I look at it and I go, ugh. And people are like, but it was good. And I'm like, ugh. So it's very normal. It's a very normal uh, thing to feel that way. It's very normal to feel like. Well, like, thank you. It, it definitely helps. And I'm not saying this just yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. for saying it. But the truth is that it makes yeah. a lot of sense. And you're absolutely right. You know what? I have. I listen to all the other guys and I go, yeah. how come I can't be just cool like those, like them? <laughs> you know, it's like, why do I have to sound like that? You know, why do I? But it's just it's just what you perceive to, to be you versus what reality is and you know um i used to do a joke about this but i stopped doing the joke like eight years ago but it's one of my first jokes i used to talk about how we should have a a pill that makes us see ourselves in the mirror the way we really look i said because you know we need it i would say you know we need it because um you see fat guys with their sleeves rolled up acting like they're all tough and you're just like bro that's not scary it looks like a leg of ham you know you know, they got tattoos. It's like, that's a USDA stamp. What are you talking about? You know, it's like, <laughs> because our self-perception, our mind tricks us. When we look in the mirror, the mind tricks us to look at ourselves in a way that, that, that what we think we look like, that's what we see in the mirror. But that's not what we really look like, especially if you're overweight like me. I've never felt fat in my life until I look at pictures and go, who the hell is that fat guy? But in the mirror, I can't see it. I can see it once I lose weight and I start gaining weight, then you can kind of have a reference. You're like, your mind has a disconnect, but your mind is designed to protect you. So it protects your self-image. So when you look at yourself in the mirror, you, you don't re- necessarily see what you really look like. That's a, that's a weird concept. So when you see the podcast, there's a disconnect there. Your mind's not telling you that's me telling you I'm watching a show and then you're going who's that guy yeah I don't recognize that guy because your mind won't let you recognize that guy yeah in my case I see that's for sure but that's, uh, a, that's, yeah, yeah. But that's oh. a very negative thing to <laughs> say about yourself no, no, no of course but the, the the biggest success for me was like even with that Boom, upload that thing. You got to do it. Yeah, that's You got to bite the bullet and you got to hope everybody likes it. That's just what I, I'm, I'm so grateful that people like my podcast that I take the time to, to respond to everybody's comments. What is your podcast about? Just tell us, just in case um, someone's not familiar with it. My podcast is called uh, Está Cagado. And um, 
it's pretty much a, a podcast on weird facts, right? And um, it's a short podcast. It's 15 minutes. So I have my friend Richard, the guy I work with in L.A., uh, and I were talking. And he said, you know, Sam, a lot of the content, uh, people looking for content for social media and looking for content for different channels, they, they, did, a, they did a study and they figured out that the average person sits in the bathroom for 15 minutes. The average person sits in the bathroom for 15 minutes looking at social media, looking at he said, so there's actually a company out there, and I can't remember which one he mentioned, but it was one of the big, they're actually looking for 15-minute uh, content because they say it's perfect to upload that content and people will watch it while they're sitting on the can. And I said, wow. He goes, so if you can come up with sketches and things that are 15 minutes long, he goes, uh, I got a buyer. I got someone that will buy it from you. And I was like, okay, cool. Because he would do that too. He's there's a lot of shows that he's that he's sold to different streaming companies and channels, and I mean Redbox and stuff like that. I mean, there's even a refried comedy DVD out there on Redbox. Sigue la risa went to Netflix. I mean, this this is my buddy in LA. So I said, 15 minutes, okay. So then it, then I said, well, let's do something on weird facts. I love weird facts, and and uh, we'll call it Stacagado. Something you can listen to while you're sitting on the can. Nope. 15, 20 minutes at the moment? 15, 20 minutes. I go, Lo que puedes, uh, yes, está el intro. ¿Consideras que tienes dos podcasts porque lo haces también en inglés? Son dos. Sí, bueno, sí, es, es que es el mismo podcast, pero uh, hago uno en inglés y uno en español. El uh, inglés es literalmente traducción de está cagado, the shit. And it's like, I'm going to talk about the shit and stuff that... That was the whole premise. The joke is you sit in the toilet for 15 minutes and learn something new, you know. And so <clears throat> what happened was I started doing my podcast in Spanish. And a lot of the people that tuned in weren't really my followers or my fans. They were tuning in because of the guests that I had on my podcast, which were pretty successful podcast guys in Mexico. Are They still are. But they were, at the time when I did the podcast, they were like, um, they had a huge following. So a lot of their followers got on. And they were making fun of me because of my, uh, uh, the, the fact is that I'm, I'm, I'm an American. So even though my Spanish isn't bad, they were making fun of my Spanish. And uh, it was like a lot of comments were like pretty negative comments about this guy doesn't even speak Spanish. Why is he even doing this? You know, stuff like that. And I would always answer back, no, nah, I'm giving it a shot. You know, I mean, uh he sh like even stuff like he should just stay in America. Why is he even bothering with that? You know really? stuff like. So I said, well, <clears throat> I said, well, um, and they and seeing they make fun of those guys, my friends uh, Eduardo and and Jose. They would make fun of their Spanish too, and they're Mexican, but they'd make fun of their Spanish being very northern, very Chihuahua. And I said, yeah, but you guys wish you spoke English, the way these guys speak English, because those guys speak perfect English. Nope. And I said, all right, let's do one in English, and they're like, all right. Let's do it. Let's do it in English. Let's do it in English and Spanish. And then that way, when they want to talk shit about my Spanish, I'll talk shit about their English. And then, <laughs> then we laughed and laughed and laughed. And then we said, well, no, but that's actually a pretty good idea. Let's do one in English, do one in Spanish. Well, there's a lot of English-speaking people in Mexico. Yeah. I actually I actually went recently and got, I got booked to do a show in English in Mexico City. Really? Uh, yeah, there's a restaurant called Pinche Gringo. It's a, bar <laughs> it's a barbecue. There's, they got a couple of them. But it was an Austin-style barbecue joint in Mexico City. 
And when I went in there, they, you know, you walk in the building, they had a full Airstream travel trailer in there. And that travel trailer was where they were like serving the barbecue out of. It was the, the chef actually studied in Austin how to make like Texas barbecue. And you went in there and everything was Texas. Everything was was American flags. And it was called Pinche Gringo. And it was full of people from all over the world that live in Mexico City that go there to have Texas style barbecue. Booked in Mexico Booked to, do, to English. do English comedy. Yeah. Wow. And it was awesome. That's yeah. another level. Yeah. Going back to your podcast right away, Sam, how does it feel to work with very successful people? Just to give some context, in case you don't know this, uh, you work very closely with Badia and Lalo, which are the, uh, the host of Leyendas Legendarias, which That's is right. one of the, the I'm, I'm not sure if it's the top one, but top three of all podcasts in Mexico and other Latin America countries. So again, does working with them give you pressure or is it a relief that they help you out how is it working with them yes <laughs> um, i go yes because it's like you asked two questions and i just answered yes <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. You know. but uh, a little bit about those guys um i actually met lolo a few years ago maybe four years five years ago maybe five years ago i was already kind of doing shows in spanish and i did a show in juarez and he came and he introduced himself and he goes, I'm a stand-up comic, but I'm kind of new. I'm just starting out. So, oh, nice to meet you. Uh, and um, Richard Villa, my friend from L.A., had come down. We were going to do a show in Juarez in El Ascenso. In Juarez, it was like a dumpy bar. But we are going to do a Spanish show. And he tells me, we have this show. It's called Late Night Combadilla. El Late Night Combadilla. And he goes, it was on Channel 5, but now we do it on our own. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Nice to meet you kind of thing, right? Well... They started getting more active in the English scene, and we started kind of seeing each other around more. And then um, one day they invited me to their show. Him, and I didn't know Vadilla. Um, I knew Lolo. I didn't know Vadilla. I didn't know Gabe. I didn't know Tanya. That's their girlfriends. I didn't know them. But they invited me to be on their show. And I said, sure. Kind of like you invited me to this show. And I was like, sure, let's do it, right? So they invite me to this show. I go to Juarez, and they give me the, the address. And uh, at first, I was a little suspicious because they had been hanging around with a lot of the guys that didn't like me in the El Paso scene. And they'd been like, I thought, man, these guys already poisoned these guys' mind. Maybe they're going to play a trick on me. I don't know. But the night before I was supposed to be on their show, there was a show in Juarez. And, and it used to be an open mic at this place called Jackson's. And it was an open mic. And I thought it was an open mic. So I went. I was like, I'm going to go do some stage time because I need to practice my Spanish. And I showed up, and it turned out to be a contest. And uh, I was like, well, I don't really like comedy contests. I'm, I'm kind of against them. I think that it's like a really bad idea to put comedians against each other. Because at the end of the day, comedy is subjective, and it's the audience you have to make laugh. It, it's not really a competition between comics. It's between you and the audience. You know, It's like bull riding. You know, your bull riding is between you and the bull, <laughs> nobody else. And so... I look at it that way. I've seen a lot of bad blood, a lot of animosity between comics because of because of that, you know. So I, I wasn't really in the contest. But that night I went, and I was like, um, I'm going to go do some time. And I walk in, and Lolo and Badia are there with Gabe and Tanya. And they go, oh, Sam, you're going to be on the show tomorrow. Come sit with us. So they were very inviting. And I sat with them, and they were very nice to me. They said, and see, at this time I was like a, 
they were they had their late night show, but I was kind of one of the bigger comics. I mean, in the, in the in the region, still I think you know I was like Juarez El Paso, still one of the biggest comics. I mean, I was I was doing I mean I do big shows and stuff like that. So they showed me a lot of respect for being a, an established comedian. They they treated me very kindly. We hung out, we talked, and then they made me feel very welcome. And then um, the next night, I went to their studio. I walk in the door, and it's this building in Juarez, and you go upstairs, and it's the whole floor of an upstairs building. And you started to look around, and they had a studio, and it was homemade. They had taken like the the they had taken like the the Clorox bottle, and they'd cut the bottom off of the Clorox bottle, and they put a light bulb in that, and they had that hanging up in the ceiling, shining down. They made their own lights, and and they. They, they had plastic chairs for a studio audience, and they had all these makeshift microphones. They made their own teleprompter. They had a teleprompter. And this was a late-night show, like The Tonight Show or like Conan O'Brien, and everything was homemade. And you had these kids just working their ass off. They, you know, they had a stage manager, they had a script, they had timing, they had commercial breaks, they had shot all these commercials that were like spoof commercials that they would play in between scene changes. And I'm watching these kids work for no money. And they're just anxious to make this work. And they're live streaming this show. And they're getting 5,000, 6,000 views at a time in Juarez. And, they're, and they, they, do a, they did a monologue, a desk piece. They had a guest, which was, they interviewed me as a guest. And they had me do stand-up, like they would a, a musical number. And then they had intro music and outro music. And they had, and I was like blown away by all of the work that these kids were doing. And I said, I love this. I love you guys' energy. I love that you solve problems, that you make your own lamps, that you that you just that you're just sitting here uh, making this. How did you guys even get this building? They're like, we started a company in the U.S. and we go and sell the work. We do it in Mexico. That makes it legal, and that's how we're able to support this. So they're working doing designs and graphics and stuff for, for advertising to be able to pay for their place. And they go, we got a really good deal on it. We did our own painting. You see the paintings slapping. You see walls are slapping. And I'm going like, I, I love you guys. This is exactly what I wanted to do in the U.S. But everybody always said they wanted to work but never worked. Yeah. Everybody acted like they wanted. I go, I don't know where you guys are going with this. But I know you're going to be successful. I told him that. I said, I want to be a part of it. Well, anything I can do to be a part of it, you guys let me know. And they said, well, we have writers meetings on Tuesday. You're welcome to come and be a writer on the show. And he goes, we offered it up to everybody. And some people show up and some people stay. Some people leave. But uh, you're more than welcome to come on Tuesdays. We have writing. writing we, we write the show on Tuesdays. And then we air it on Thursdays. I said, I'll be here on Tuesday. And you were there that Tuesday. I was there on Tuesday. I showed up. I said, you know what you guys need? You guys need some bleachers because your studio audience is, is sitting in these plastic chairs and you can't fit enough people. So we built them some bleachers with my business. I made them some bleachers, took them to Juarez. We set up the bleachers. So now you can fit 40 people in the studio audience. And they would have beers during the show. You could drink a beer and watch the, the live show. 
And when you watch the episodes on YouTube, you can hear the audience laughing. That's a real audience. There's 40 people sitting there watching on bleachers, right? I, I got to punch up their uh, – turns out there was eight writers on the show. It was eight people writing. Gabe, Badilla, Lolo. Lolo was the editor-in-chief. And then there was uh, Jorge Rodallegas, uh, Goose. Um, I can't think of his last name right now. Um, uh, myself, uh, uh, Luis Garcia, which Luis Garcia won an Emmy. He's, an, uh, he's a reporter. He was a reporter for Telemundo. He was a writer on the show. Um, El Borre, uh, Mario Lopez Capistran. We had this great writing session where we'd be, I'd be smoking my cigar. We'd be pounding down drinks, eating snacks. And we'd start like at 8 in the evening, 7, 30, 8 o'clock. It'd be midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning before we'd wrap up. And this was every week. And then I remember the very first time my name was on the credits as a writer. you know, And I was like, wow. So I was a writer on their show. Then they decided to launch their podcast. And what happened is we would shoot so many episodes of the show, and then there would be a break. So they decided to launch their podcast during the break, and it was going to be what they were going to do during the break, and then after that we're going to get back to writing. It never happened. Their podcast took off. Why do you think that happened? They did something that nobody else did. And they cha they've changed the podcast world in Mexico. They did. Okay? They did it about something other than comedy. They did it about something other than interviewing guests. They did it about something that people wanted to know. They just happened to be comedians that made it funny. But people want, and then they, the subject matter, paranormal activity, true crime, stuff people wanted to know. And then you have a couple of comics making it funny and punching it up, blew up. And look at the podcast now. Tipos míticos, está cagado. We all talk about something other than comedy. We don't just interview our guests. Although we do talk a little bit about our guests, but it, it you know, but that was the very traditional format for podcasts for a long time. And in Mexico, what they did that just made them uh, el dollop and made them just take off was that they did it about something that the audience wanted to know and then the audience fell in love with them. Wow. I didn't think about it that way. And not only that, they do a really good job. It's yeah. not, oh, we're going to talk about what, oh, what do you guys want to talk about it tomorrow. Yeah. They do they their, do a, their investigation. Research, yeah, their the super. I mean, Badia does a week's, uh, a month's worth of investigation for one of the episodes. I mean, the guy is on it. He's reading. I mean, he reads books to talk about what he's going to talk about. And, and, and you see that. And there's so many podcasts that are successful in Mexico right now. And they, they give them credit. They go, I learned I, I had the idea of doing my podcast because of their yep. podcast. And, and I had the idea of my podcast because of their podcast. Now, when I when I had I had been a guest on their podcast, um, and I've been a guest on a dollop as well, and um, a dollop was later, but um, they told me, Sam, you're, you're part of our crew, and we're going to take care of our crew before we take care of anybody. So you're in. Like anything, I mean, you were there for us when when – when we weren't anything. I mean, you, you're part of our team. And so was Luis Ardo, and so was Borre, and so was uh, Jorge Rodallegas, and so was Guz. I mean, all these. Ram is the technical director. Um, Gabe, you know, we were all we were all this group that we didn't we didn't have any success, but we, we knew it was going somewhere. We didn't know it was going to be the podcast. So when I, when I told Lolo, I said, I'm thinking about doing a podcast. I want to do it um, 
this is the concept. I said, sure, let's do it. And I was surprised because they were already really busy. I go, so you want to produce my podcast? He goes, yeah, we'll produce your podcast. You're, dude, you're part of our team. We're going to do it. And that's the secret to my success. The secret to my success was what I said earlier, be nice to everyone. But you can also spot talent. When yeah. you spot talent, you go, not so much that, that I think they're going to be successful and I want a piece of it. It's more like, I know that these guys have the right attitude, they have the right work ethic, and I want to have the same attitude, and I want to have the same work ethic, and I want to be where people are like me, are better than me. Yep. I want to be where people want to work hard, and they, they're, they're devoted. And I remember I took Lolo to L.A. with me. I mean, we, we've been on the road. We've done comedy together. They do shows, and, and it's like there's shows when there was, uh, there was a time when, when I was way more famous than they were, and now it's like forget it. Now you look. Now they're just like pff, different level, you know what I'm saying? And but now they're in a position to help me. When I was in a position to help them, I tried. I did everything I could to try and help them achieve their success, and they achieved it. And then they, and then once they had it, they're like, "Hey, you were there for us. So now we're gonna help you back," and it's been great. Wow. Well, Sam, thank you for sharing. What is for anyone? Uh, thinking of starting a podcast maybe they already have a podcast what are some things that you have learned so far just to give us a little bit of context again we said July mm -hmm. you have you started from 10 subscribers you're now at 10,000 subscribers more yeah. or less 10,700 okay no one's counting yeah, I, I am <laughs> oh, yeah, <they> <laughs> yeah, no, it's and like, I'm at 35 yeah. no, no, I really no, no but it's but it but this is what it takes mm -hmm. oh yeah you can't you can't get subscribers if you don't have any content. And that, like I was telling you, even before starting this, the reason I started this podcast, it's sitting right there. No, oh, I appreciate that's that. That's it. That's yeah. it. And and, and 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 that's how I, I the reason I started doing stand up was to make people laugh. There was no real like ambition as far as where I'm going to take this. And as long as I get to make people yeah. laugh, I'm good with it. And all of this stuff kind of fell on my lap to a certain degree, although. I didn't give up and go, well, I'm never going to be. No, I was like, I'm going to hustle. And so hustle as much as you can in what you love doing, but do it because you love it, and, you'll, and, and you'll, it'll, it'll be great for you to do. Yeah. And it's a great podcast. You have a great little studio, great setup. I mean, it's really nice, dude. And, and I mean, the microphones, the everything is good. I mean, the, the audio Are is good. Are you enjoying the conversation as well? Oh, yeah. The conversation is great. And it's one of those things that, of course, I'm talking about my favorite subject. Nice. <laughs> Which is, okay. <laughs> Which is me. <laughs> Which is <laughs> no, uh, comedy. No, I mean, again, but Sam, thank you. But again, I, this is the main reason, and I know I've been 100%. saying it on every single episode, but the truth is, this is my why to hang around with people like you that not only reinforces the message, but gives me other things to think about. And again, my, my influence circle, expanding that, like, oh, my God, I, I'm so... Again, guys, we've been here for... It's going to be close to two hours, but right before starting, we were another hour just yeah. talking. And I'm going to tell you wow. something else, okay? Um, this might be the first step into something different. Mm. You know, you might, you might have started this podcast just to meet people like me or to get to know different people that are, that are doing stuff in El Paso. You never know. This, this, this might be the initial step to then having a totally different concept along the same lines, but it's, it's, it's exactly like a late night that we tried so hard to make that successful. And then one day 
boom, they, they launched a podcast and, and it grew so fast, so phenomenal, their growth in that podcast that they had to come back and go, guys, we're not doing a late night anymore. Yeah. And we, the thing is that it's not an overnight success. That late night had to happen in order for them to be exactly. successful. So this podcast could be your first step to having a successful podcast, like a, a way more successful podcast. This one might be successful, or this might be what leads into a more successful podcast. And at that time, uh, five, six years from now, I go, I remember that guy invited me to his podcast, and we've been friends ever since. And now uh, I'm on his way more successful podcast. I'm glad I was nice to him. <laughs> you know, and, and you just never know. And it's vice versa. Yeah, definitely. Because my podcast is doing good right now, and, and I'm going to keep pushing that podcast, and, and people enjoy the podcast, and I love my fans. My fans, thank you guys for me. Toda la gente que me sigue en el podcast, muchas gracias. Ahora sí hablas español, Sama. Sí, no, es que, es, es que la mayoría habla español. Este, mi grupo de Facebook se llama Los Cagadienses. Ah, oh, ok. Sí, y este, pues los quiero mucho a todos. Siempre les digo, les pongo, los quiero mucho, Cagadienses, porque sí los quiero. O sea, es chingón que la gente me siga y, y lo aprecio. Es algo que me hace sentir... Me hace sentir orgulloso de lo que estoy haciendo, pero me hace sentir uh, querido hasta cierto punto. Es, es, yeah. es bien raro porque, pues, como, como platicamos, uno es muy criticón de uno mismo. Mm -hmm. Entonces, cuando la gente te dice, hey, me gustó mucho, gracias, pues, es lo máximo. Pero, pues, tal vez eso no va a ser el final, ese es un principio. Tú nunca sabes, sobre todo la gente que conoces, a lo mejor vas... No, o sea, la verdad, he disfrutado mucho esta plática. Gracias. Sí quiero acabar esa pregunta que, que te hice, porque yo sé que hay mucha gente que a lo mejor quiere empezar un podcast que lo está haciendo. ¿Qué les aconsejas a ellos, a la gente que ya sea está pensando o ya lo tiene? Yo, yo pienso que lo hagan, que hablen de algo que les apasiona. Uh -huh. Que sea algo que te gusta, que sea algo que, que te apasione, que, que te despiertes en la mañana pensando... Yo quiero, hablar de, yo quiero hablar de esto porque pues, es algo que me interesa a mí. Porque el, gran, el mundo es tan grande que hay miles de personas que se interesan en lo mismo. Entonces, disfrútalo. Trata, uh, muéstrale respeto. Yo pienso que ese problema con muchos podcasts... Um, no le muestran respeto a lo que es el podcast. ¿Qué te refieres con respeto? Si te puedo preguntar. No se preparan... Mm. Uh, eh, es una charla entre amigos y ahí estamos nomás platicando y risa y risa y bueno, eh, la gente que está escuchando el podcast, la mayoría de la gente este, va a escuchar tu podcast porque va a aprender algo de ahí, va a, a fortalecer su mente, va a, a, a estar entretenido hasta cierto punto, uh -huh. entonces muéstrale respeto a lo que es tu programa y échale ganas a que tu programa sea lo, lo mejor que tú puedas. Puede ser como tú quieras, pero... Porque no, no me han mandado a mí este link. Cada rato me mandan links. Eh, escucha mi podcast, a ver qué te parece y dame consejos. Yo, mira, para empezar, yo no soy nadie para dar consejos. Yo apenas también estoy empezando con lo, esto los podcasts. Como estando pero te puedo dar consejo. Como podcastero apenas le estoy agarrando también. Pero lo que sí te digo es que son cuatro vatos ahí tirando relajo, pisteando. Y dices, ¿dónde está el formato? ¿Dónde está? ¿Qué voy a ¿Qué voy a agarrar después de este tiempo que yeah, estoy aquí perdiendo? Si yo no me voy a juntar contigo en una barra, en la vida real, menos en la vida virtual. Ok, sí te entiendo. Sí. Y creo que es muy buen consejo eso, porque sí es cierto, te digo, por ejemplo, Elia Esparza acaba de estar eh, en, el, en el podcast y después me dice, ¿sabes qué? Lo que me sorprendió es que, que me estudiaste, que estuviste, sí. y le digo, ¿sabes qué? No es por... 
Es lo mínimo que puedo hacer. Es que si tienes... me regalaste tu tiempo de venir, de hacer, es mínimo hacer mi trabajo en, 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 en estar preparado. Que, que la gente que me está regalando su tiempo y como te dije, a mí para el tiempo es algo que sí. yo valoro mucho. Es lo mínimo que se puede hacer. Pues y es mostrar, eso es mostrarle uh -huh. respeto al arte. O sea, me, me estudiaste, este, sabes eh, las cosas que... Porque eso hasta se hace más ameno a la plática porque dices... Ah, no, pues este es un compa, o sea, es una persona que, o es una persona que, es, que se preparó. Lo, lo peor de todo es venir a, a, pues me ha tocado, me han mandado links y son cuatro vatos pisteando, o, o están hablando de pura, puras uh, tonterías, o puras peladeces, o pura, y dices, eh, esto yo no, eh, es que tiene que ser programación de calidad, sea de televisión, sea de radio, o sea, si tú escuchas, por ejemplo, en Estados Unidos se usa mucho escuchar como NPR, you know, uh -huh. National Public Radio. Y esos programas es, son programas de radio. Antes la televisión era por radio. Entonces, eh, yo digo que tengas un poco de empeño en lo que estás haciendo. Lo que estás haciendo. Y, y que lo hagas con el respeto que se merece el programa y va a tener éxito. Porque la gente lo va a percibir. Ah. Oh, pues, uh -huh. pues muchas gracias, déjame te hago la última pregunta que sí le he hecho a todas, para ti va a ser cuatro preguntas en una ok, okay. la pregunta es give us one thing you love about our city and one thing you would change or improve, now the thing is why is it going to be four el paso y danos otra Juárez dos cosas que te y no puedes usar la violencia por favor en Juárez pero dos cosas que te gustan de Juárez y del paso y dos cosas que cambiarías de Juárez y del paso Uh, lo que sí me gusta mucho de El Paso es la comida mexicana. Mm -hmm. este, y es Tex-Mex. O sea, vamos a... a, a es Tex-Mex. Uf, uf. En eso podemos tener otro podcast. Sí, podemos tener otro no. este, la, Porque es como regional norteña de México. Y, los, y toda la gente de México dice que es Tex-Mex. O sea, las enchiladas. Los, los, si te vas a Juárez, vas a comer casi casi lo mismo que El Paso. Ajá. Entonces me dices que es Tex-Mex. Tex-Mex. Ok, no va a discutirse, gracias por tu <risa> sí. tiempo, pero... Okay. No, sí lo consideran Tex-Mex. Ok. Ya, yeah, yo sé, yo sé, no, pero la comida mexicana, en todo Estados Unidos, para mí, la mejor comida mexicana es en El Paso. Sí, señor. Ya, yeah, yo pienso. O sea, ¿Qué es lo que te y, gusta del y, Juárez? Vamos a um, seguir el tema ahí. Juárez también es <risa> la comida mexicana. <risa> lo, que me, no, lo que me gusta, lo que sí me gusta mucho de Juárez es que la mayoría de la gente es, es amable. Ajá. Uh -huh. Y, y servicial y, y te ayudan si te quedas ponchado eh, o, o lo que sea este, la gente está dispuesta a ayudarte muy servicial muy sí. servicial eso me gusta mucho el público la gente de Juárez es muy linda um, claro pues que hay ciertas personas que no ¿verdad? pero por general eh, de, de los millones de personas que viven ahí este, la mayoría son muy lindas Um, la segunda parte de las dos, ¿qué cambiarías del paso? Tu nacido, aquí has crecido, ¿qué es lo que te cambiarías a lo mejor? A lo mejor, no que cambiarías, pero a lo mejor que estás viendo que ya cambió, que a lo mejor te está gustando y lo mismo de Juárez. Um, yo pienso, yo pienso que el paso tiene la mentalidad de que son uh, muy hospitalarios, ¿sí? O sea, y, y generalmente sí son las personas individuales pero para manejar no <risa> they're assholes oh, <risa> o sea, okay. no y eh, no te dejan entrar ok sí se, la, se aceleran este ven que tú quieres cambiar de carril y se aceleran para que no cambies de carril so, so, somos bien mendigos en ese sentido en el paso ok sí. 
Sí, no somos tan amables. Y, y dicen, okay. dicen, dicen que no es cierto, pero yo viajo mucho y están otras ciudades donde hasta... Eh, y, y lo irónico de todo es que estás en Los Ángeles y te dan el pase. Estás en otras ciudades y te dan el pase. Y el paso, ah, no, este güey quiere... Y, y lo manejan en el, en el carril izquierdo este, constantemente y el carril izquierdo es para rebasar. Entonces, aquí en el paso, si yo pudiera cambiar algo, es de que... Eh, uh, Quítense el carril izquierdo, por favor. Ok, ok. Ya. Yeah. Gracias. <risa> sí. Ay, tú, yo, yo estoy pensando, ¿qué tipo de persona soy yo y cuándo manejo? ¿Qué tal de Juárez? A, a Juárez lo que me desespera, desespera de Juárez, son las obras públicas. Uf. Sí, este, yo constantemente voy a Juárez y voy a, me, voy por las Américas, así, hacia la hermanos Escobar. Literalmente cancelaron un carril... <risa> Para poner planteros. Tienen más de año trabajando en los planteros. ¿Sí? Donde cortaron calle, pusieron curvitas. Y ves la raya del carril ahí junto de, de las curvitas de los planteros. Todavía no hay tierra en los hoyos. Cancelaron un carril para poner planteros. <risa> Oye, Sam, es ¿Sí? que alguien dijo, aquí lo que falta en Juárez son plantas. ¿No? No. Lo que, lo que dijo, y, y, y me da un poco de miedo decirlo... Pero dijo alguien en el gobierno, necesito feria, güey. Hay que hacer una obra, ¿sí? Y de ahí yo agarro feria. Se la damos a fulano de tal y él, ahí se va a mochar. Y este, vamos a hacer todas las obras públicas que podamos hacer. Porque ya se acabar, ya, se, ya va a haber elecciones y necesitamos dinero. Y de ahí me chingo un dinero. Se chingaron de la X. Vamos a, a pintar la pinche X roja. Vamos a pintarla otra vez. Y la vamos a hacer porque necesito feria. Hey, vamos a, vamos a quitar todo un carril del triunfo de la república. Para poner plantas. Para poner paradas de camión a media calle. Vamos a la calle principal de Juárez, ¿sí? Le vamos a quitar el carril de en medio. Tres carriles, porque es el carril de, de la parada de camiones y dos carriles de cada lado. Vamos a cancelar de seis carriles, vamos a cancelar tres porque necesito feria, güey. ¿Sí? Y, y vamos a poner la parada del camión a, 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 la, a media calle para que crucen a pie estos güeyes a esperar el camión. Vamos a, a, a cruzar la calle más transitada de Juárez. ¿Sí? Va, vas a cruzar a pie para esperar el camión. En lugar de esperar el camión, como en todas las ciudades grandes de todo el mundo, donde están las paradas del camión, a la derecha o a la izquierda, dependiendo en de cuál sentido estás viajando, para que estés en la banqueta esperando el camión. No, en medio de la pinche calle vamos a poner la parada del camión. <risa> se ¿Sí? ve que esa me estaba esperando esta pregunta, sí, ¿eh? O sea, gracias. Ya la había estudiado, gracias, sabía que... Gracias, gracias. No, que, que esto llegue al gobierno juarense, por favor. Me desespera, <risa> me desespera, porque... Y luego, luego se van de... Se va, los, ponen los barriles anaranjados así para que... Para que para decirte que hay construcción, que, que gracias por poner barriles, porque cuando yo estaba niño ponían piedras y, 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 y latas con petróleo prendidas para avisarte que había construcción. ¿sí? Ahora de perdida hay barriles, pero se van así de un carril abierto a un carril cerrado, así en un 2x3. Llegas a un tope de barriles y tienes que hacerte a la derecha y esperar que te den la entrada, el pase de la gente. Se hace una congestión tremenda. Por esas paradas. ¿Se ha sido a Juárez? Sí, sí, sí. Ya ves que están haciendo la, la parada de camión en medio de la Triunfo de la República. Toda la Triunfo de la República casi hasta el aeropuerto. 
Soy muy malo para calles, pero sí sé a lo que te refieres. Siempre hay algo, siempre. Sí, sí sabes cuál la triunfo. La... Sí, sé cuál es la triunfo. Sí, la calle principal. Uh -huh. La que sí, llega la... a la Gómez Morín si la sigues derecho. Bueno, si la sigues todo. No, todo. no, esa, sí, no, la, la Paseo Triunfo es la Panamericana, la Tecnológico. Es la que te lleva hasta el aeropuerto. Ok, ok, okay sí, sí. Es que te lleva hasta la salida de Chihuahua. Sí, esa es la calle principal. De ahí de, de, ahí de las Américas hacia el aeropuerto, han clausurado tres carriles, inclusive los puentes que son cuatro carriles, ya, ya tienes que estar en los dos carriles de, de hacia afuera y luego irte hacia en medio para cruzar los puentes. Y así va a estar siempre porque ahí van a estar los camiones. Bueno, no sé, pues vamos a abrir un podcast que se llame Calles y Rutas <risa> no. de Ciudad Juárez pronto, no, <risa> porque no. es algo que te no, apasiona. Ya, ya dije, ya dije, <risa> me preguntaron qué me molesta de Juárez. Sí, no, no, gracias. Eh, ¿Cómo se siente? <risa> Ah, no, o sea, ya para acabar otra vez, ah, muchísimas gracias, te digo, el tiempo lo valoro y sobre todo la plática, la verdad que he disfrutado mucho tu tiempo, la verdad, muchísimas gracias. Gracias, otra gracias vez. por tenerme aquí. Bueno, that's all I have. Thank you guys. Adiós.